Sometimes in pressure situations, in the heat of battle, men say things that would have their mothers searching for a bar of soap. Now, this next feature does not celebrate foul language, but it is a study of it. Mark Twain once said that under certain circumstances, profanity provides a relief denied even to prayer. Well, I swear you won't hear a single curse word in this piece, but you will hear quite a few and and. All right, everybody get in and smile. What is up? It is the Sportscasters. Season 2, episode number 34 on a rainy day here in Buffalo, New York, September 18th, 2012. I am the host, Steve Bennett, along with my co-host, Don Russ. What's up, Don? Hey, how's it going? Busy day here at the Sportscasters, just uh, about oh, 18 hours or so after the completion of the second week of the National Football League and... We're going to talk all about those kinds of things. First, let's do some business. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. Gmail, email us anytime, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Our blogs are thesportscasters.blogspot.com and thesportscasters.tumblr.com. And you can find all this information on our website, www.sports-casters.com. I want to thank our guests from last week, Season 2, Episode number 33, Pablo S. Torre, Dan Wolken, and Mike Shope. Get any feedback on the Shope interview, Don? Um, no, I haven't yet. But I haven't talked to my dad or anybody yet. So uh... my, uh, my brother said something that he kind of liked it, and my mom thought it was really funny that after he asked who was going to listen to it, you said her. I said You said my mom. Your mom. Yeah, yeah. so she thought that, <laughs> that was that was great. Just to be included for her was a huge victory. <laughs> uh, don't forget about our other podcast over on Football Nation, www.footballnation.com. This week we have an interview with the awesome Jason Lackenfora, and we're really pumped about that. Last week we had an interview with Don Banks from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. And the week before that, we had an interview with Kenny Albert just before he broadcasted the week one game between the Saints and the Redskins. So we're, we're kind of on a roll with our Football Nation podcast. Yeah. So if you haven't checked that out yet, now is definitely the time. Uh, Jason Lackenfora should be, uh, and always is, a really good interview. And again, if you're over there and you have trouble, any trouble finding it under the contributors or the search at the top, just type in Sportscasters and it will be the first ones to pop up. Uh, this show today, uh, episode 34 of the Sportscasters, we have Lee Jenkins is finally going to make his 10th appearance on the podcast. <laughs> finally. Finally. Uh, ben Ryder is going to stop and join us and talk a little bit about the pennant races and some of the awards that will be given out by Major League Baseball at the end of the season. You know, the MVP, Cy Young, that kind of thing. Sure. But the focus is going to be on the races and more specifically, what ha- now that we're in it, what has the effect been by at, when Major League Baseball added yeah, that, that second wild, wild card? card right? Yeah, what what? How has that affected the wild cards? And Ben's going to sort all that out for us. And a super honor, 
he's not in the Hall of Fame yet, but he is going to go into the Hockey Hall of Fame in November. Roy McGregor from the Globe and Mail in Canada, which is essentially Canada's USA Today, is going to join us to talk about, unfortunately, the Very NHL lockdown. locking out yeah. for the third time in 17 years, which is not a good track record. Nope. But an honor for us to be able to talk to Roy McGregor, who in November, regardless of a lockout or not, will be entering the Hockey Hall of Fame with the likes of Pavel Bure and local hero Rick Jenneret. So we have a great show lined up for you today. Uh, we have Five on Fantasy. We have a crowded book club update, just like last week. We're going to close the show with pick four, and we're going to start it with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, like we said last week, uh, for the next 15 weeks or so, what we're going to be doing is with this first thing, Don and I are going to kind of combine forces to just kind of talk about some of the things that happened over the weekend in the NFL or even college football if we'd like. Uh, but just to kind of recap the weekend that was in football. And the first thing right off the top that comes to mind for me is one home team's Really rebounded this weekend. If you were playing at home, you would probably won. Uh, <laughs> home teams were very dominant. Yeah, only two teams didn't hold at home, and that was surprisingly New, New, New England, England and Jacksonville. In Jacksonville, which is not surprising. No, no. So, great week for home teams. And then the second thing is, half the, over half the league is, is one and one. The way it breaks down, there are six teams who are two and zero. Oh. Six teams who are 0-2 with only one team in the NFC 0-2, the Saints. Mm. And then the rest of the league is two and is 1-1. One one. So what that means, one, is the Miami Dolphins of 1972, I think, are going to be popping the cork a little bit earlier than usual this year. Yeah. Because we're already down to only six undefeated teams. And I don't know that there's a team out there that showed me that they're going to threaten that the way maybe Green Bay did last year. Yeah, San Francisco maybe looks like the most complete team right now, but the way they're Alex, they play, yeah, yeah they, they play everyone so tight. Their quarterback's not someone that blows people away, so it would be tough for them to go undefeated. Another thing that jumped out is the way that rookie quarterbacks who struggled in Week One rebounded in Week Two. Uh, Brandon Whedon, who people were mocking. I mean, just mocking after the yeah. week one performance. He had the best. He had a five er five uh, excuse me era a five QB rating week one. He bounced <laughs> back and really played a great game. As did the Browns' other first round pick, Trent Richardson, Trent Richardson yeah. which I think was a huge relief to Browns fans everywhere. So, and then Ryan Tannehill bounced back, got his first win. A little help from Reggie Bush on that. Yeah, and uh, Russell Wilson got his first win. And uh, RG3 still played well, but as we called Sam Bradford out on the other show, he, uh, he kind of stuffed it up. Yeah, I imagine this week, too, because, like you said, there were so many one-on-one teams. I bet a lot of people are knocked out of eliminator pools. I know I do one for ESPN, their free one, and I'm already done. My eliminator team this week was New England, so, I mean, I guess that's one less thing I have to look at every week. But it's... 
early in a football season is really hard because as soon as you think you got a team figured out, as soon as a team looks like a world beater, they they go ahead and lose to a team like Arizona, who's one of the few two and O teams. Who would have thought that Arizona and I think Philly play this week in a matchup of two and O teams. Uh, a lot of major injuries this week, which you don't like to see. But Forte suffered an injury back on Thursday night. His coach says it's not a high ankle sprain, but I'd be surprised if he doesn't miss a little bit of time. Uh, Aaron Hernandez is hurt. Washington. Yeah, tough week for the Skins. Yeah, they lost to Rackpo and Carriker for the year, so that's gonna be that's gonna be really tough to replace that production. And that's a recurring injury for Rackpo. That's the second time he's injured that pectoral muscle. I hope huh. that that's not something that's gonna prevent him from being what a lot of people and not just people, but what he showed on the field, he can be. Yeah, and I don't think this is one of your things, but. The officials no, yeah, had, they had a real. bad week this week. Yeah, this was the week that this thing got real, I think, for fans. Because anyone who watched the Monday night football game, what they saw was a crew that was in over their heads and couldn't control the game on the field. Right, and that's the biggest thing to me. If you want to hear more about this, this is one of my specific things over on our Football Nation podcast. You can hear a little bit more that I'll have to say about it over there. But I don't have a problem with blown calls. The regular officials blow calls. Uh, it seems like it's not uncommon to wake up Monday morning or Tuesday morning and listen to sports radio and hear about how calls were messed up. This isn't anything new. But the problem is the misinterpretations of the rules, uh, being downright wrong about rules, uh, making making up rules in certain cases or just missing rules because they don't know them well enough. That's the stuff that's a problem. And like you said, the, the loss of control of the games. The, these games have been a lot more chippy than I remember in a while. And I think that's that's because the players are basically saying the substitute teacher is there, so we're going to push our, push our limits a little bit. And the worst thing for the officials, I think, is that it happened last night on Monday night yeah. with Peyton Manning playing, the whole country watching. Yep. ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, all that, and it was just ugly. They marked a five-yard uh, defensive holding penalty, eleven yards, <laughs> which you know I think the, it, initially they may have been confused because it is a ten-yard call in college, but they even tacked on an eleventh yard, so they're wrong any way you look at it. And that mistake was called out by Mike Tirico and John Gruden right at, during halftime. I can't remember what the first challenge was that John Fox had to make. Oh, it was on a tipped ball on a pass interference. Right. So it was really obvious, but he had to use one of his challenges to get it overturned. And then his second challenge. No, the didn't... second challenge was the tipped ball, and he lost that challenge. Oh, he did lose that one. Right. I can't remember off the top of my head now, but I know he had to challenge. He had to make two challenges. One of them he, he lost won. the first one. The second one was the tip ball, and he won that. Okay, one. but he was out of challenges. Right. So then he was out of challenges the rest of the way. Right. But yeah, I mean, that's the stuff that's tough. I mean, again, it, missed calls will happen, but it, and the fumble by Moreno, uh, it seemed like a Bronco came away with the ball, but it was oh, awarded right. to the what, Falcons. That's what started that whole skirmish. And then there was a big scrum. Yeah, it took about eight minutes to sort that out. I mean, that's yeah. just not acceptable. The first quarter took about an hour and 15 minutes or so to, to straighten everything out. So a couple other real quick things. The Bills did what they had to do, bounced back in a huge way, destroyed Kansas City, who so far looks like they might be the worst team in the league. They could be. They're in that discussion for sure. 
Uh, sadly for me, the Saints look like they might have the worst defense in the league. Yeah. Uh, the defense has given the offense no chance to win either of the first two games. Yeah, and Drew Brees looks like he knows it. Drew um, Brees is a little rattled. I'm not watching the games, obviously, as closely as you are, but I have the Sunday or the the Red Zone channel, so they'll flip back and forth. His pick six it, was awful. He's throwing some balls that maybe if he trusted his defense at all, he wouldn't be. He's just trying to do a little too much, it seems like. And yeah, that defense needs help. And uh, the Steelers uh, look good and bounce back over the Jets, who didn't look nearly as good right. as they did the first week. Yeah, again, it's interesting if you're in like a survivor league. I was. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Steven Goskowski. There's so many teams. That looked dominant week one, that went and lost week two, or vice versa. And like, boy, did Green Bay's defense look great on Thursday night? Yeah, Clay after, Matthews was unblockable after looking lousy the week before. And Chicago looked great week one. And Clay Matthews great. had six sacks last year, as five and a half already. This year. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. All right, so where do we go? Oh, last thing, uh, the Coughlin Shiano. Oh yeah, this was interesting. Uh, a little. The, the handshake gate, if you want to call it that, because they like to tag gate on the end of things, was between San Francisco and Detroit. Right, Schwartz and, that was and Harbaugh. All, yeah, that, that was the big build-up to their game. Nothing happened, though. Nothing happened. However, in the Giants-Tampa Bay game, if you didn't see it at the end, Tampa Bay blew multiple leads. I think they were up by 14 or more at one point to blow the game. Uh, and when Eli was taking knees... At the end of the game, they bum-rushed him, basically, hoping to get a cheap fumble, I guess. But that's how they play. Look at his tapes in That's Rutgers. what he says. Yeah. Right. I don't know. At that point, you lost. Uh, that's why the kneel down exists. I'm all for play to the whistle. Uh, some people are asking what Kansas City was doing at the end of the Bills game throwing. It, maybe that's just a team that was so bad for two weeks you want to build on something positive. Yeah, they have a game next week that they want to try to win. They right. need to build on whatever they can. Trying to get a cheapy win like the Giant, uh, like Tampa Bay, that's that's just Bush League. You're going to get, gonna get somebody hurt way more often than that play is ever going to succeed. There's nothing there. No. There's nothing to accomplish. Yeah, it, what's worse is that he tried to defend it today. I'm not a Coughlin guy. I... He hated the way he publicly trashed his punter on the field when Deshaun Jackson beat them on a punt return the one year. I just I'm not a big Coughlin guy. I think he he tries to pass the buck a little bit, but I here I think he's absolutely correct. I agree. All right. I'm not sure who's going first. Or you're going next. Okay, I'm going next. Yunel Escobar of the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah. Uh very foolish move, my man. Uh Let's see. In a game a couple days ago, he had a gay slur on his eye black. And today, Major League Baseball suspended him for three games. This was in the game, huh? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Getty Images showed Escobar wearing the eye black with with the slur written in Spanish during Saturday's game against the Red Sox. Okay, so it was in Spanish. It didn't just... Right. Getty Images confirmed the photo's authenticity authenticity to ESPN's Keith Law, who had this story. Escobar has said, I'm sorry for the actions of the other day. It was not something I intended to be offensive. It was something I just put on the sticker on my face as a joke. There was nothing intentional directed at anyone in particular. I don't have anything against homosexuals. I have friends who are gay. 
In reality, I'd like to ask for the apologies of those who have been offended by this. Uh, Escobar makes about $5 million a year, which means in three days he'll lose $92,000. Escobar's forfeited salary during his suspension will be directed by the Blue Jays to You Can Play. Uh, The top of You Can Play, Brian Burke's son, Patrick Burke, was on this podcast before. Uh, It's a peaceful Toronto-based organization aimed at promoting peaceful and conflict-resolving lifestyles in the Gay and Lesbian Alliance defamation so and ask escobar finished saying i guarantee this will never happen again in my career it's a lesson i've learned and will never commit again if you want more information on that this story is on espn.com okay just to follow up with something we started to talk about a little bit last week and we spoke with uh roy mcgregor roy mcgregor about today the nhl is officially locked out uh there's really not much to report on that it's in the lawyers and the players association's hand. Now, uh, some quick movement though, uh, going to Switzerland. If the season doesn't start, Rick Nash, Joe Thornton, Logan Couture, Mark Strait, Yannick Weber, bunch of guys going to Russia in the KHL, Malkin, Gonchar, Datsuk, Brizgalov, Ovechkin, uh, Crosby first, rumors, Crosby rumors, uh, Nail Yakupov, first overall pick, Alexander seven, Kovalchuk going to Germany is Buffalo's Christian Erhoff and Yammer Yager. Alesh Hemsky and Thomas Placanic will be playing in the Czech Republic if they don't lace them up this year. Bummer. Yeah, it sure is. It's not what you want to see. I love hockey movement and rumors and stuff, but I don't really want to hear where they're going in Europe. We'll talk more about that later with Roy McGregor. Uh, my third thing today. Wow, Alabama looks like they're basically in another league. Yeah. Somewhere in between college and pro football, it feels like. Uh, they're three and zero. They beat then number eight Michigan forty-one to fourteen on a neutral field. Then beat Western Kentucky thirty-five to nothing in a game where they played the starters quarter and a half, half. <laughs> and last week they went on the road to Fayetteville to play an Arkansas team who had already been upset one time, but basically had. A decade of expectations riding on this season and this game and beat them 52 to nothing. Wow. Uh, It hasn't been close yet, and it doesn't look like it's going to be close soon. And the remarkable thing about it is how many players that Alabama lost in the first round of the NFL draft last year and in the draft in general. And it's cliche to say in college football, but this team doesn't rebuild, they reload. And they are loaded this year. The game to highlight... Saturday, November 3rd, they go on the road to number two LSU, who looks about as good as, I don't want to say as good as Alabama because they're not quite to that level yet, but they look like the second best team in the nation, and they're ranked that way. That game will be 8 o'clock on CBS. So, I don't know, I see a really favorable schedule. Um, They play Florida, Florida Atlantic this week, and then Old Miss, those are home games. And they play back-to-back road games against unranked Missouri and unranked Tennessee. Tennessee's a little bit better than they've been. Uh, And then they only have two games left against ranked teams. The home game against Mississippi State and the road game against LSU. This team might be in the national championship game even if they lose that road game to LSU. Yeah. Uh, They look great. They look better than everyone else. And it's scary. So I just wanted to mention we haven't done a lot of college football yet. In our segments, we have had... Dan Wolkin and Tommy Thompson on in the last couple weeks to talk college football, but I just wanted to mention that it's getting uh, it's 
getting closer and closer to looking like Alabama will be one of the teams in the national championship conversation come Thanksgiving time. Yeah, I won't. In the interest of time, I won't do it. But uh, I'd be interested to see what you, what money you'd have to lay down on them right now to win it all. Because I bet you your odds aren't very good, or aren't very favorable in the better. You might as well wait to the game at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my last thing this week, you heard off the top, kind of a, a little bit of a goofy clip talking about swearing. And if you remember NFL films as you do when I grow up, you remember the coaches and the funny bleeps and all that stuff. But Steve Sable has passed away of brain cancer at age 69. Really, I heard Mike Shope, who we had on last week, talking on the way here to record our podcast, and he said, I'm not sure that there's anyone that's done more to popularize, if that's a word, football in America than Steve Sable and NFL Films, and I would have to agree. Even as a young kid, if you told a young kid they have to sit down and watch a documentary, what kid would want to do that? And that's basically what these NFL films were, but they were fantastic. Uh, he won 35 Emmys for writing, cinematography, editing, directing, and producing NFL films. And in 2003, he earned a Lifetime Achievement Emmy for, quote, revolutionizing the way America watches football and setting the standard in sports filmmaking. So if you love shows like mm-hmm. Hard Knocks or any of the, the sports documentaries, uh, Oil Change and all those type of good shows – they would have to give a nod to Steve Sable and everything he did. And really, I don't know that there's any better sports filmmaking documentary than those old uh, 80s and 90s NFL films productions with, uh, I can't remember the announcer's name off the top of my head. He's good too, though. Yeah, his great voice and Steve Sable setting up all the clips and just fantastic. And the NFL lost lost a real... uh, a hero for the game and his dad went into the hall of fame but he hasn't been inducted yet and hopefully this will speed yeah, up that process that's an absolute shame but uh yeah hopefully for his family he'll be in there godspeed and rest in peace steve sable he'll be missed Our first guest today is from San Diego, California, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated and SI.com as a senior writer where he covers basketball, football, and the sport closest to his heart, baseball. He has been honored for his writing by the New York Press Association and the Football Writers Association of America, the Colorado Press Association, and was named New York's Best Sports Writer by The Village Voice. He is making an unprecedented 10th appearance on the podcast today. Warm sportscasters, welcome to our very good buddy, Lee Jenkins. What's up, Lee? Hey, Steve. How are you? Oh, we're doing very good. Very excited to have you on. And I got to tell you, I've been having so much fun watching these poor kickers you jinxed just hook everything. Oh, <laughs> jeez. I mean, what the heck is going on? One column, which I loved. I think you had great intentions. And you've, it seems like you've jinxed the whole kicking world. Steven Goskowski can't even make a 42-yarder in New England to win. You know what, though? I don't know. I mean, these college kickers, it's like, I don't really know how good they were in the first place. I mean, when you look at the percentages, they're actually pretty solid, and you follow it through the years, and they've gotten better and better and better. But you see these guys in clutch situations, 
every week. I mean, when I got the assignment, I asked an editor, when's the story going to run? And he said it'll work any week because any week of the college fall season, you know, one of these guys chokes a huge chip shot to win a game. So I don't know if you're just looking for it more now or if it, I really, you know, am at all to blame. But I'll tell you, I feel after doing that story and talking to these guys who've missed these big kicks, I just ache for all of them because so many of them, you know, they really don't belong in that situation. I mean, they're, they're college kickers. Some of them are on scholarships. Some of them aren't. Uh, but a lot of them just have never been in a venue like that. Like the kid from Penn State who made the, who missed that kick against Virginia. Yep. You know, I mean, he just, a lot of these guys just shouldn't be out there. You know, I talked to this guy from Virginia Tech or I talked to a teammate of his kicking the Sugar Bowl. He's a third stringer. You have all these stories of guys who sort of are thrust into action, and they're going right from their little high school um, to having to make a huge kick for a program you know, that they're not even a real big part of. But then for that moment, they're deciding millions of dollars for, for their schools. You know, it's interesting because I have a brother who uh, you know, grew up being an intense hockey player and eventually earning a D1 scholarship. Well, they don't call it that because it's Yale. They call it a grant or who knows what, but they pay for it. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because you see how hard some parents, like, try to force it. You know what I mean? Like it, And I, I was thinking the last couple of weeks, man, if I have a son, I should just train him to be a kicker because – You know what? Don't, you'd be surprised, Steve. They force it with that too. I mean there are camps – for these guys and you know in high school or even before you know and you have kind of yeah i grew up with a with a kicker went to sc usc and um you know i mean his brother kicked he kicked it was sort of like a family deal and the way it usually works is you have a kid because all kids look at soccer and you have these ones who were you know really good at soccer have a big leg and then they sort of get funneled into the kicking game you know, you know, maybe seventh or eighth grade, something like that, and they get sent to these kicking camps, and it is intense. And I think part of it is, because you know, a lot of these D1 kickers for football or FBS, I should say, they have the leg strength. A lot of it just comes down to the mental side of the game. That's what all those kickers said: is you know that it's, this is completely psychological. The ability to come back from a miss. You know, to not overcorrect, to trust yourself. And I think, you know, at that level, when you have all these college kickers and you just want the big legs, I think some of these programs, because look, they're evaluating all these different recruits, you know, most of whom they, they prioritize way over kick, way above kickers, you know, they're not able to really get in there and find out is this kid the kind who's going to be able to handle, you know, a sellout crowd of Florida? Um, and a chance to win a game. I mean, they're just—I I just don't know how you can evaluate that. They find out once they're there. I can't. They believe, find out the hard way, really. I can't believe we've known each other this long. You never told us you grew up with the Grammaticas. <laughs> Abram, no, it was different. I went to USC. Oh, okay. Uh, I actually oh. quoted the story out of Abram. It's just a, a, a friend of mine. That would have been that would have been funny. I'm a little. Uh, I think I'm a little younger than the Grammaticus. I <laughs> oh, hope so. okay. Oh, I thought no, he was a little more athletic. I, I thought think, you, but, but not as good a kicker, probably. I, I thought <laughs> maybe you were the one who taught Bill Grammatica that that tear your ACL celebration. That would have been that would have been my kind of move, definitely. <laughs> uh, the sports guests are here with our good buddy Lee Jenkins. You can follow on Twitter at si underscore Lee Jenkins, and it hasn't been basketball season for a while, so you've been doing a lot of this kind of college football stuff. You've been enjoying it. Yeah, I have. I went up to. Uh, 
Or again, I got a story in this week's magazine about DeAnthony Thomas. Um, you know, it's probably the fastest player in college football. I mean, electric, and it's kind of a funny story because this guy barely touches the ball. I mean, he gets like you know six carries a game or something. Like in the Rose Bowl, he got two carries, and he went for 155 yards. You know, they barely. Give, they give him the ball in different ways. Um, but he's a running back, technically, and they, they, they barely give it to him. He's only a backup, uh, technically, in Oregon's system. And yet he scores a touchdown once every seven touches in wow. his career. Um, once every seven times he gets the ball, he goes to the house. And this season it's once every four point something. He gets it, he, go, he goes to the house. So, I mean, he's definitely maybe the most electric player in the, in the sport. and. It's kind of a fun story. It'll be out this week, but I don't know if you guys remember that um, Snoop Dogg, like seven years ago, established this youth football league yep. in inner city Los Angeles. And so this guy, Thomas, was one of the first generations of that. I mean, it was sort of seen as a joke at the time. Um, and then back then, Thomas would have been 12 years old. And I start the story, um, which will come out, is he uh, he's playing this game and Snoop's there with his buddies. And I actually got to hang out a little bit with Snoop um, just researching the story. <laughs> and he's talking about, you know, being up there and, and this guy, this other guy from South Central L.A. said, hey, I'll bet you 200 bucks that that kid's team wins. Snoop said, sure. He took the bet. Opening kickoff, you know, of course, the guy takes it all the way. Um, ran, ran the length of the field in about seven seconds, Snoop thought. So Snoop runs up to the press box in this little field and starts shouting, that's the Black Mamba, that's the Black Mamba, <laughs> over and over again. And so he sort of created this legend, and this kid Thomas became kind of a celebrity in L.A. even before he hit high school. And then he had an incredible high school career at Crenshaw. And so he, you know, it's something that you hear about maybe in smaller towns, small town high school football where these guys are famous. Um, but really in Los Angeles, DeAnthony Thomas was like that. And I've never really heard of another football player who's like that. So he's got an interesting little path. And, uh, you know, he was kind of one of these young young legends and has this weird relationship with Snoop, which is kind of funny. What are the scouts, NFL scouts, saying about him? You know, he's only a true sophomore, so I didn't really go there. I mean, I have a feeling that with these guys now, there's a lot of skepticism. I mean, things he does are a little like Reggie Bush, and it's reminiscent of that. And he's he's more slight even than Reggie Bush. So I think that the day when of the, that kind of player would be truly valued and thought of as a number one pick, you know, like it was when Reggie Bush was coming out. Of course, he ended up going number two, but you know what I mean? Right. I think that might be over. I think he will be looked at as, you know, more of a specialist. And, I mean, there's no doubt he'll be an NFL player, um, but I don't think he'll be a bonus baby or anything like that. I mean, he'll be seen as, you know, somebody you have to get creative with. I've never really... Never really understood why those guys don't translate. Um, why co- NFL coaches who are so bright can't take a better advantage of some of those players' skill sets. Um, I know DeAnthony Thomas won't be an every down back in the NFL, but still, I would think he'd be more valuable um, than probably the value will be assigned to him. So, was that the white? Have you ever felt more white than the day that you hung out with Snoop Dogg? <laughs> Hey, I cover the NBA. I feel like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. No, I mean, you know what though? It's like he was actually really, it was actually really cool hanging out, being around him a little bit because he had all his boys with him, and they were just telling stories about football. Snoop was telling stories about how 
he used to play in Pop Warner and then, you know, obviously got sidetracked in high school. He went to Long Beach Poly, which I think is still the high school that's produced the most NFL players in the country. Hmm. Um, and, and I think Snoop wishes he would have played, but obviously some other things were monopolizing right, his attention right. back then. And uh, so it was funny. I was just hanging out. I mean, he'd run his practice. He just coached his Pop Warner team. And it's funny watching him in there coaching these kids. And then afterward, he just hung out. And for a little while, it was me and a couple other people just talking about Thomas. And uh, you know, yeah, I guess I did. I guess I did feel white, but that's easy to that's easy to make me feel. So, <laughs> you mentioned that Thomas was kind of the first guy. Has his success given Snoop's program a little bit more cred? And should we expect more people to come from this program? Yeah, I think we should. I mean, it's only been seven years, and they actually have a bunch of other. Uh, I didn't mention this in the story, but they have a bunch of other college players right now, including Jonathan Franklin, who's running wild at UCLA for the first few weeks. And what's funny is Snoop doesn't even know any of these guys by their real names. He knows them all by nicknames. Okay. So, you know, so it's, it's funny. Like, he knows Jonathan Franklin as Jet Ski. You know, it's, it's just part of that, uh, of that world where everybody's got a nickname, and that was so... Anthony Thomas was was Mamba, and also Snoop kind of became, in some ways, a father figure to him. I mean, Thomas had no dad, didn't know his dad a lot growing up, and Snoop would bring him over to the house. I talked to one of Snoop's sons, said he was almost like a brother um, to them. So it's a funny way to grow up when, you know, you're in South LA in a difficult neighborhood, but then you know you kind of have a haven at, at Snoop's house. <laughs> <laughs> Did uh, Snoop try to force you to smoke a blunt? Yeah, you know, every single friend of mine is asking. That. I'm, I'm not not even I'm not even remotely cool enough for him to ask me to do that. I think he was like, "When, when is this little interview going to be over?" It's right. Probably the way, uh, probably the way it was. You were probably holding him up from yeah, exactly, such adventures. Exactly. Right. That's great. The, the life nobody wants to smoke along with a guy who's uh, you know holding a tape recorder. <laughs> the life and times of Lee Jenkins when basketball yeah. isn't being played, right? Yeah, exactly. No, it's been fun, but I I can't wait for the uh, for the NBA to start. It was like just thinking about our preview issue today, thinking about how many you know great angles there are, and I know people are going to complain about the lack of parity in the league, and I do get that. Um, but as far as just stories uh, and you know these kind of teams that are all loaded for bear, and it just feels like the league is at you know a great height right now, and that there's going to be so much interest and look i live in la so obviously i'm affected you know by the lakers and clippers to right. some degree gearing up and you know i think the lakers are going to be such an incredible story um to follow this year how that whole thing is going to play out do you think parody is a little overrated i mean especially for a league like the nba it was more popular than ever when the bulls were just running that league year after year no it was in the lakers celtics even before that right. I think for the popularity of the league it, it's all what your, what your perspective is. I think for David Stern, it's probably overrated. But having talked to him about this very issue, uh, you know, he, there's a care that exists in the NBA office about smaller markets. And like you guys live in Buffalo, yep, I'm from San yep. Diego. I feel the plight of the small market. I, I think that in the NBA, it's to a far lesser degree. I mean, it, look, the market size does matter, um, but a lot of it is desirability of market in the NBA about attractiveness of where to live, whereas in baseball it's sheer size. Um, and I think there is, you know, it's, there's, there is some, I mean, there have been amendments to the CBA, things that happened during the lockout that were accomplished to help smaller markets. And I think we'll show up as we move down the road. I almost think that Dwight Howard, Darren Williams, 
Chris Paul in a year could be the end of this wave because the financial benefit to staying where you are is so great. Um, but look, a lot of these guys want to win and they want to play, a lot of them want to play together. And that does go back to this AAU culture. And I don't know if that's as much about market um, as it is about where the talent is, you know, is collected. I mean, if, if Oklahoma City were in position and they had a, a salary cap slot, I think you'd have guys who would want to go there and play there. Um, I mean, I know you would. And so that doesn't have to do as much with market. Um, but, yeah, I mean, parity is... In those markets, I mean, you just never want a fan of a team to wake up on opening day knowing that his team has no shot. And there are going to be a lot of those teams this year in the NBA, just like there are in baseball, and that's a problem. You mentioned that you've been thinking a little bit about the SI preview issue. Tell us a little bit kind of like what goes into, like, how is that thing hatched? Like, how does it go from being an egg to being a magazine? Like, what's kind of the way? What's the process there? A little take us behind the well, scenes a little bit. I actually was all set to do one guy, like one story, and then got an email and said, "No, we want another story." So I'm not necessarily involved. I, mean, I throw out ideas. A couple years ago, I really wanted to do the Thunder as kind of the centerpiece. I just felt as though they represented a nice. I knew everybody would be doing the Heat. Um, this was right when the Heat got LeBron and, and after the Bosch. decision, right? And, and so I thought that Oklahoma City would be a perfect counterpoint. It's like a team that's been built the entire opposite way. We could go against the grain. I think that worked pretty well that that year. Last year there really wasn't even a preview because the lockout we had to throw right. something together quickly that it wasn't all that great. Um, so, but this year it's sort of like I had some ideas, and then the editors told me what they wanted, <laughs> um, which is which was totally different. So we usually try to get do kind of a feature about a player or a team that seems highly relevant, then we try to often, you know, balance it with kind of a, a more technical story, um, which we'll have this year that I think will be kind of a cool one. And then this year we're throwing in also like a trend story. So you're just trying not to, you don't want to load it down with features. I think that's probably similar to what most publications do. You, you want to have that one nice read, that nice feature, um, and then something a little more technical and then something a little more trend-oriented just to give you, you know, give a, a reader who maybe doesn't keep up with it all the time, kind of a broad, the broad brush strokes of, of the league. Um, so it's, it, it's always a fun uh it's always a fun exercise, I and mean, part of it, though, is you, you have to kind of account for every team. So we have these things that are called the scouting reports, where you have little stories about all the teams or all the divisions. And I always am curious about whether or not that's read. You know, when I was a kid, I liked that because there was always something about my team. Right. Or I could get a quick glimpse at every team. But they're not usually high-impact stories. So I know that in, the, in, in our office, that's something that's always kicked around, it's like, with that space, do we want something on every team? Do we want divisional? Do we want to scrap it entirely? And it's some of those issues that I think all of journalism, you know, wrestles with. It's like, do you step back and do something big, or do you do something for everybody? Um, so I know that that's for every sport. In the previews, I'm always hearing, "What will we do with the scouting reports?" How important is what you think might be? You kind of mentioned it with the heat and how you figured one year everyone might be doing the heat. How important is it to consider like, you know, Grantland is basically founded by a guy who wrote a 900 word or a 900 page book about basketball. And there's ESPN, the magazine and ESPN and all their coverage and all the other things. How important is it to write features and to do things in that issue or really with your coverage in general that sets 
SI's coverage of basketball aside from everything else that's going around around it? Yeah, no, it's a good good question. See, I mean, I think about I think about those guys all a lot. I think about what they'll probably be doing, how they'll do it. I mean, you're going to end up doing the same stories, and you just want to do it in your own distinctive way. And you know, I think it's important when you're writing. I mean, it's, it's not news breaking, so it's not as though you get beat um, necessarily. You just want to. I look at it more like golf. You're you're just trying to do it the best way you can um, and hope you give the reader a different look at what the, than what they're giving. And the reality is, like, when I look at our kind of subscriber numbers and some of those breakdowns, you know, a lot of our readers probably are not ESPN Magazine readers just because a lot of people don't get, you know, most regular folks wouldn't get two sports magazines. Um, and I think Grantland's probably got... I know I love Graham, but it's got a different audience. You know, so for journalists, for me, my friends, we're reading all of those things. Right. But for most of our regular readers, they're not. And so it's not that bad to give them, you know, the same story done in or the same topic done in different ways. And you know, in the preview, it, it is hard to work around that because sometimes you just have a topic that's really relevant, and you try to think of an angle. Um, that you hope other people won't necessarily do, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it's the same angle, and you just try to do it the best way. You try to report something that maybe they didn't report, or you try to write it a way that they won't write it. And look, it's the same thing with every story. Like this D. Anthony Thomas deal. You know, other people know about that Snoop Dogg connection. I'm not the first person to write that. I may be the first person who's gone and talked to Snoop about it and fleshed out the tale of it. And for you guys, it's probably the first time you've heard that. It is, yeah. So it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? That the readers in, some of the readers in Portland know that. It, it, you know, it's just, what, what are you going to do? You know, it's like there aren't that many um, subjects to go around. There aren't that many life stories to go around. Right, not that many secrets out there either. Uh, no, and you but you can find you can find little gems like you can find little things, um, you know when you and that's what the reporting is when you get in there you dive into a subject. Um, when ESPN will be doing the same story I'll be doing, but I still feel like if I dive deep into it, you know I can find things um, that maybe with all their people they won't because they. You know, they have so many people, and they're trying to do so many different things um, that sometimes just being being a smaller operation can have, you know, some benefits to it. The Sportscasters are here with our good buddy, Lee Jenkins. You can follow on Twitter at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. This has been his 10th appearance on the podcast, and we can't thank him enough for what a great friend he's been to us and how much street cred he's given us in the world oh, of yeah. Sports <laughs> Illustrated and everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better word for it. Uh, last thing I'm going to let you go, and I know you haven't had as much of a chance this year to cover baseball as maybe you like, but I'm just curious, how have you felt, even in from far away, how have you felt the effect of the second wild card this year in terms of being a guy who's a baseball fan? Have you liked the addition of it or disliked? Um, you know, I, I, I don't... I guess it's the lack of feeling about it that makes me, and the lack of consideration for it that makes me think. Um, and I know people have said it, it was a good move. I mean, that seems to be the, the, the popular opinion seems to be right that it was a good move. Um, but I haven't considered it a lot. And to me, it's, it's just kind of a cumbersome addition. I, I just don't think it was needed. I mean, you're coming off a season where you had that, that great final day, uh, right. one of the great playoffs ever. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know. It just seems to me what 
they distinguished baseball to some degree was the smaller playoff format. So to bring in another wild card, um, you know, I kind of felt like it was unnecessary. Um, but I will say that in baseball, it's it's so important to give markets hope. And it's kind of go back goes back to what we were talking about originally. Right. It's just that so many markets don't have that hope, and so the second wild card, you know, it, it does do something in that regard, you know, I mean, look, I've been following, I'm, I live in Southern California, so I follow these teams, and without that wild card and the second wild card, you know, really this region would probably be almost out of it at this point, but with the second wild card, you have teams that, that still have some hope. Have you uh, got, what, what, what do you guys think of it? Well, I mean, I kind of go both ways with it, like, I know when I first became a baseball fan, I kind of would be a little bit bummed that only two teams, like at that point it was only two teams per league that made the playoffs when I first started yeah. watching baseball, you know, and it kind of frustrated me a little bit, and I think I liked the first wild card. And this one, I'm on the fence, but you know what? I want to actually see it play out one time before I get too passionate about it either way, you know what I mean? But Yeah, no, I'm not uh, – yeah, I mean, look, I like seeing teams like Baltimore in the mix. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, the, the way this thing is coming down, there are a lot of teams that you know just haven't really been involved for a while. You know, I like the, that the A's will be back in the playoffs, and you know the Nationals. And you're going to have these situations where kind of the, especially in the National League, these old money like teams like the Braves, you know, will probably scrape in with that second wild card or the first wild card or whatever. And then how you know those new upstart teams like the Reds and the Nationals handle them. Um, you know, it'll be interesting. I just. It just seems like something that baseball. I feel like baseball really had it right, but um, they had it before. Sometimes I don't understand why sports are constantly tinkering. I mean, I'm sure money has something to do with with, with it in all, all these situations. But it's like it's like with the NCAA tournament. I guess I feel like that a little bit. Like with the NCAA tournament, it was just the bracket was one of the few perfect things. Right, and about then it sports. got screwed up with just, the date and stuff. It was just perfect. It's like kids could understand it. You know what I mean? Everybody clipped it out and took it to school, and now you've got these these plans that nobody really cares about anyway, and it's just it's just cumbersome. It's like I was trying to explain to my four-year-old yesterday, because you know, he was wondering where the Angels fell at the playoffs. He's four. And I was trying to explain it, and I'm like, well, they got this second wild card, <laughs> the first wild card. It's like the eyes are just glazing over. Right. It's like at some point, let's keep this simple. I mean, sometimes we make sports into such calculus um, that it's frustrating. I think what I'm maybe worried about a little bit with the second wild card is you have a team like Oakland who's had an unbelievable season and yeah. really deserves to be in the playoffs. And if they end up having to play the Angels in that first game and have to go against Weaver, who's been lights out against them all season, I mean, it could just be that's it right there and it's over in three hours. You know, so like that worries me a little bit. But No, I think the, the whole thing about putting these one game, I mean, one game in baseball is just, ridiculous i mean that's done for ratings and for viewers and you know talk radio to get breathless about but anybody can beat anybody in a game i mean you could have a college team beat a big league team if it's just one game you know it's just that's the way baseball is it has to be it has to be a series or to be a loses all credibility and even right. the best of fives are cruel i mean they are cruel have, have you know, because even it even with that it's like you know if you do out the ratio i mean you have a 162-game season, and then your season can be over in three games. That's just – that's really rough. Have you had – And it does. You're right. It puts even more – there's already so much emphasis on having the ace. The ace, yep. the Big dog in your rotation. And now, you know, even more of an emphasis on that. And that's 
and that's another area where small market teams, you know, the prejudice is against them because it costs a lot to to obtain and retain those big dogs. And a lot of small market teams, they do it by having a couple of number twos or a few number threes, and you have a solid staff. But in the playoffs, they're all vulnerable. Have you taken the boy to see Trout yet? Have you seen Trout? Yeah, Trout? we did. Yeah. yeah, we yeah I did Trout and Trump. They you know Trout and Trumbo. Trumbo, and it, yeah. You know, it's incredible. They're just an incredible organization because it's you know, they have the money. They do it that way with the free agency. They're not a big sabermetric team. Um, you know, they really haven't been for a long time. It's pretty it was pretty old fashioned player development there and and scouting and. You know, they've had a ton of answers. It's like they have that kind of when you have that kind of farm system. It's sort of like the Red Sox a few years ago. That kind of farm system combined with the money, you're pretty much unstoppable. And you know, really amazing what they've done. I'm actually surprised when you look at the talent they've had. They have the money, the pitching, that they're not in the playoffs at this point. But yeah, the AL West shocked. has gotten re- re- really strong. And it's a credit to the A's and, and Billy and uh, those folks that that they have been able to hold them off. Um, given how much talent is in Anaheim right now. Now, your son's a little young, but is he more drawn to, like, a Trout or somewhat, like, is he more drawn to, like, a Pujols? It's funny. He was, no, I mean, he talks about Trout every day. Okay. I mean, every day there's some reference to Trout or Trumbo. He actually likes Trumbo a lot, too. Um, Trumbo's from the area and stuff. So, you know, both of those guys have really captivated something, um, I think, in young fans. It's something that we had. I feel like when I was growing up, baseball had a lot of, bankable stars. You know, they have a lot of star faces. And I see it at the magazine where the last few years, it's like, well, what baseball player do we put on the cover? And most of the bankable guys were pitchers. Mm. It was part of coming down from the steroid era. You just didn't have a lot of hitters with marquee names and, you know, real brand value. Um, and so those Angels guys, especially Trout, kind of recaptured something there. I think we had maybe more in the, in the 90s. Um, with you know the Ripken and Gwynn and Kirby Puckett and guys like that, um, where you see Trout could become someone like that, Bryce Harper also. And it's funny to think, like, you know, not talking much about my son, he's four, this guy's 20, and I was thinking the other day, you know, my son will be a teenager, and Mike Trout will probably still be in Anaheim playing really good baseball. Right. You know, I mean, when you have that kind of youth, you can get an attachment early, and, and, and really it can define your uh, part of your childhood and who you grow up rooting for and all those all those good things that I think we all probably had when we were kids. You must be so pumped to have a young boy who seems to be interested in baseball and to be able to live in a city where you can take him to a game on a Tuesday or whatever and yeah. see guys like that play. Like that just has to be such a great spot for a dad to be in. No, and StubHub is uh, and especially with StubHub. And, yeah. I mean, cause it's, it's actually, it's funny, I was, I used to have a lot, and it's it's become almost like when I was growing up, I used to go to games for five bucks all the time. The team sucked, so I could move down. You know, ushers didn't care. I think like StubHub has become this odd equalizer where you can go to a game again for ten bucks. You know, it's, it's a little more expensive. You know what I mean? It's, it's right. like, if you don't care that much about where you sit, you know, when you have a, a little one, they don't really care. They just want to be in the building. Right. And, you know, it, it makes it so that, and I don't know how it is with you guys, like for Sabres or whatever, because there is a, a variance for teams. But you can go to Dodgers and Angels games for pretty cheap. Um, and, and it's still a great, you're right, it's a great experience, and it's great baseball. And I just wish every, you know, I look at the TV in other cities, and it's just... It's depressing. You know, I was in San Diego this weekend. I went to a game, and, 
you know, it's like not a very good team and ownership issues. And, you know, the crowd was okay. It wasn't terrible. But I just, when I look at the TV, there's so many empty seats. Um, and, and it feels like baseball's, I don't know, failed in some way. And hopefully we'll get it back. And, you know, because you like, you still like the sport where it should be easy to go to a game. You know, it should be, there are 162 of them, 81 at home. You should be able to get a ticket for a good price and go. And um, not to show for StubHub too hard, but it, it definitely make it possible to go to, like, you know, in a month I'll go to, like, three or four games instead of, like, just one game. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, if you want to come to Buffalo in December, if the bills aren't any good, you can probably walk in the parking lot and someone will hand you a ticket, if not charge you five bucks for it. For an NFL game. For an NFL game, if the wow. bill, if the Bills aren't good and it's it's December, those there's probably ten thousand tickets in the parking lot waiting to be given to you. That's incredible. You know incredible. because people here, and I, so many of my friends have said I'm not getting season tickets anymore because they're not worth anything in December, and I'd rather just go and pick up a ticket for free then if I want to go to all the games. So what's a Sabres ticket on StubHub? Like, you know, well, whatever, we, not but, a good seat, but yeah, a good mediocre seat. Totally, like, the Sabres have the tier pricing. You know, they have the bronze. I think it's uh, value, bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. So, like, if you want to go see Toronto and the Sabres, those go for big bucks on StubHub. Uh, Canadians games go for big bucks, too. Other than that, you can usually catch a ticket either at the season ticket rate, which is considerably less, or five or ten bucks below that. Just the wow. average. Oh, oh, but how much is that total? Uh probably let's see. My tickets are in section three twenty three, which is the second best level of tickets in the upper bowl. And I'd say you could probably score a weeknight ticket against an average team for twenty five bucks. See that's pretty yeah, that's pretty it's almost like it's one place, like sports ticketing, where it's kind of come back. I don't know how we got off this topic, by the way, but <laughs> yeah. how it's kind of come back to normal a little bit. You know what I mean? Like the rest of you know, school prices and college tuitions and all that stuff is out of control, how home prices. But like sports tickets seem to almost have come back, and I don't know if that is all because of StubHub or what, um, but it's pretty wild. I mean, you can go to some games for some really cheap, um, really cheap prices. And oh, maybe yeah. part of it's just TV, HDTVs and gas prices. People don't want to be out. And, That's definitely the case the with the bills. Definitely the case but with the bills. I like it, man. I still, I still get a kick out of it. And, you know, you do still see something where you're usually like, wow, that's, um, especially when you're seeing it with a little kid where you're, you're like, wow, that was pretty, um, that was pretty cool. All right. Thank you so much, Lee. It's at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. Look for his article in this week's magazine where he talks about being real cool and hanging out with Snoop Dogg. (laughs) We'll talk to you soon, bud. No first person, I promise. (laughs) All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Stephen Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. Thank you to the great Lee Jenkins for making his 10th appearance on the Sportscasters. And it's interesting, you know, sometimes you plan these interviews out and you think you're going to go one way. <laughs> and then, especially with a guy like Lee who we're really comfortable with, yeah. it just ends up drifting another way. Yeah, he's a rock star. Yeah, he's he's the man. 
So thank you to Lee A for being such a good friend to us and B for being on the show today. All right, that brings us to five on fantasy today. We have a lot to do, and Don, I'm gonna kind of just flip it, flip, flip it up on you a little bit first. Okay. Uh, let's just start with the listener league real quick. Okay. Um, last week, Don and I were on here gloating about how great we were in the listener league, <laughs> and because of that, the fantasy gods knocked us down a peg. We both lost. I lost to the new team, the men who knock, or Ford Kendrick, a good buddy on Twitter of ours, um, newest player in the league. I lost 136. uh to 108 with some decimal points in there. Basically, Peyton Manning really let me down. Didn't play very well. Colston struggled for me. And I don't know what I'm going to do with Chris Johnson. Yeah, thankfully I lost by about 29 points, so I don't have to feel like a jerk for leaving Greg Jennings in my lineup. That's a, like a cardinal sin no-no for people it's an to amateur do. Mistake I, there. I, I hate when people do that, so I'm glad I got blown out at least. I didn't have anyone on the bench. That put up enough points for me to win anyway, but uh, bad Donnie. Yeah, so congratulations to everyone who won in the Listener League. And last year, the Listener League was like this, close, really close. And if you look at it now, Don, in your division, there's four teams that are 1-1 one and one and only one team that's 0-2. And, and then in my division, there's two 2-0s, two 2-1-1s, two and, and one 0-2. And so basically... We're just like the NFL. We have two undefeated teams, two winless teams, and then everyone else is one and one. So it's set up to be a good listener league. Yeah. Okay. So with that settled, Don, I want to know what you came up with for – I kind of threw out a question or a statement saying one week anything can happen, but two weeks you're starting to see a trend. Have you picked up on any fantasy trends that you're – Maybe worried about, maybe excited about, whatever. No, I, I kind of focused on two guys here and I, that I think are trends. Uh, that's Dennis Pitta, a tight end. And again, uh, maybe you had Aaron Hernandez. Dennis Pitta is a guy that you can maybe get and replace him. He's had five and eight catches in his two games. He's a tight end for Baltimore, if he's not a household name. Uh, they have been targeting him. Yes, and that's what I like to see when ESPN – com in their box scores has the targets. Unfortunately, they don't have them in the player cards because that would be nice. But in their box scores, they do have targets. And he's had five and eight catches on nine and 15 targets. When Flacco runs around or he gets in trouble, he looks to Dennis Pitta. So I, I like that to continue. And again, if you have Aaron Hernandez or maybe you just had a guy that you picked late that isn't performing, he's a guy you could target. The other guy is C.J. Spiller. And I came up yes. with some stats on C.J. Spiller. Starting week 12 of last year, which is eight games, and that's when he replaced Fred Jackson when Fred Jackson got hurt last year, he has 738 yards rushing, 259 yards receiving on 29 catches, six rushing TDs, and two receiving TDs. And if your league penalizes it heavily, he's only lost one fumble. Uh, In a standard league, that's about 18.25 points per game. That's top running back numbers right there. That's a first-round pick there. And – in a PPR league, he averages about 22 points a game. He's very good. I, I think he's borderline superstar. Uh, he The stuff he did as a rookie that maybe he didn't look so hot then, he's kind of corrected that. He has the ability to run between tackles, and he splits out as a wide receiver. He's arguably – I'm not going to say he's the best because that would be a stretch to say he's the best running back in the game. He's arguably the most dynamic. Uh, he's used all over the field. 
I can't maybe like a Reggie Bush, uh, but probably a little better as a pure runner than Reggie Bush. And the Bills offensive line for something that as a Bills fan is we're used to it just being bad since like the Jim Kelly era. They're they're very, very good. And I like Spiller to be good for the rest of the year. And even when Fred Jackson comes back, I there's no way they, they don't give Spiller the ball ten times a game. It tut ten rushes a game, he's gonna get his catches too. In ESPN standard scoring, um CJ Spiller is number one right now in points for running backs with fifty. He has a nine point lead over Reggie Bush, who has forty one. I'm gonna throw out some names of some guys. And I just want you to tell me who you'd rather have for the rest of the year. The guy I give you or C.J. Spiller. Okay. Uh, Frank Gore. Spiller. Willis McGahee. Spiller. Trent Richardson. That's closer, but I, I still say Spiller. Matt Forte. I'd rather have Forte. Darren Sproles. I mean, that's in a PPR league. Uh, boy. They've that that's a confusing team right there. The Saints, the first two weeks, week one, Pierre Thomas doesn't get a, a touch or whatever. The next week, he's averaging ten yards a carry. I might rather have Spiller there, but that's that's really close on PPR. Darren McFadden, Spiller, I think right now, which yeah. is strange. McFadden's been really really bad. Maurice Jones Drew, probably Jones Drew. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I I like Spiller a lot. I would buy. I mean, it's hard to buy him now because you're buying him at an all-time high price, but I would buy on Steven Sp- or C.J. Spiller. All right. I uh, know this segment can get long, so I only really prepared one of these, but I feel really strongly about it. And some people might say we we jumped a gun in this segment, that two weeks isn't a trend. But I'm going to say that it's an 18-week trend and that it's over for Chris Johnson. Yeah. I I just don't – I don't think he's startable right now. I think at best he's a number four running back. I don't think he's startable as even a flex. That team has been bad. He's been bad. I don't know if it's the change from Hasselback to Locker. I don't know if it's a coaching philosophy. I don't know if it's the lockout. I don't know if it's a guy who relied on speed and has lost some. I don't know what it is, but I know that I – I don't trust him. And if I am in a league where I put some seashells down to play inside league, I'm just not willing right now to risk it. And until this guy shows me that he can be what he once was, he's not going in my lineup. And you know what? Honestly, I don't expect him to ever show me what he once was. I think that that's long gone. But maybe to be in the lineup, he doesn't need to quite be that guy. Right, but I would rather start Alfred Morris over him right now. Would you rather start Ben Tate? Yes. Yeah, I probably would too. Yeah, he's a guy. Uh, early on in this, when we were doing this segment in the off season, talking about our drafts, I mentioned that I had two late picks in my seashell leagues, where I was hoping I wasn't going to be faced with the decision of Chris Johnson or Matt Forte. I was faced with that decision, and I took Forte, which by most of the experts' rankings, was quite a reach, about maybe about a round too early. I would rather have Forte in whatever this injury he is right now. Roll the dice with it. And then Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson, like you said, it's a real tough start. I don't know what you do with him. You can't sell him. You kind of just have to stash him and hope. He said all the right things, that he was going to win the rushing title. He's 71st right now 
in the league. It's terrible. I mean, that's like everyone who's everyone's starter and everyone's backup is ahead of him, basically. Yeah. He's 71st in the league in rushing, and I just don't see how you could start him. And as iffy as we've been in some of our starts and sits, which we'll get better. to give ourselves... Uh, it's early. We'll get better. Yeah, it's early, so to give ourselves a little bit of an out there. It's early. It's tough to make some of these calls. That's one call we weren't wrong on so far. Early in the off season, we asked when we had, a, whenever we had a fantasy guy on, we'd say, tell us why, why is Chris Johnson just automatically going to be better again? Why, why is this just going to click? And we never bought it, it. It hasn't yet. So, uh, yeah, too bad for his owners. That's a bummer. All right, let's do ads. All right. The main ads, I thought of this week where there's going to be a lot of people out there scrambling for tight ends for Hernandez and guys looking for running back replacements for Matt Forte. The one tight end, these are probably basically in order, uh, is Pitta, Dennis Pitta of Baltimore, I think is would be a number one tight end pickup. I love targets. He, he I don't think he's scored yet, but touchdowns are hard to predict. Targets are a little bit easier to predict, and they kind of are more indicative of trends. Another guy I like is Martellus Bennett. Yeah, I've heard the Giants. If he's still there, he's a must pick up, I think. Yeah. Uh, Brent Selleck, I saw in ESPN Leagues, was only owned in about 60% of leagues. I like him probably about as much as Bennett. Uh, they, uh, Vic's been looking at him a lot. And the last guy, kind of on the lower end, but he's been decent, putting up about 10 points per game in PPR Leagues, is Heath Miller. Uh, if, if you need, Those first three, though, I, I would like a lot. In place of Hernandez. And if you can't get any of those guys, keep in mind that New England today did sign Kellen Winslow. That's true. And he's only taken in 0.2% of ESPN Standard Leagues. Yeah. So, if you, so chances are, if you want Kellen Winslow, you could put a claim in for him right now. He's probably available. I imagine he'll play this week too, right? I don't see why he wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, they picked him up pretty early. What happened to Vicente Schenko there? Did they cut him? Penis was too big. They just couldn't. <laughs> the fear, the, just a lot of the guys in the room were Tripping. really afraid of just the size of the penis, so he's no longer <laughs> with them. All right, the running backs I came up with for Matt Forte. Uh, number one on my list right now would be Michael LaShore, just because I like the upside there, I suppose. He's owned in about 20% of ESPN leagues. If you need someone this week, he might not be the best bet just because this will be his first week of action. He's probably going to at least split carries with Kevin Smith. Uh, Jonathan Dwyer I like. The problem with him is he's looked good, but there's three other ba- or two other backs there. And everyone might have already picked him up last, last week. week. Yeah. yeah. Andre Brown is an interesting name. Giants own yeah. 0.4% of ESPN. So he should be there. And this that is contingent on Bradshaw being out and it, Bradshaw does play Thursday. So the chances of him being out are probably pretty solid. I ended up drafting David Wilson in a lot of my leagues, hoping he would be the guy behind Bradshaw. And he still could be, he could be, uh, but he got in bad favor right away with a fumble and he hasn't looked good. So if you need a guy for this week, it would be Andre Brown for me and keep an eye on the Michael Turner situation. Uh, he did get a DUI after the Monday night game. If he's going to face the suspension. I'm not sure how long that usually takes to to work itself out, but if he does, uh, Jack Quiz Rogers could be a good one or two week fill in. Just a couple guys I want to add. Um, a running back that I watched play a little bit last week is a guy named a kid named Daryl Johnson or excuse me Daryl Richardson 
Uh, he plays for the Rams. He's only he's oh, only yeah, less yeah. than one percent of leagues. And I think he's kind of in the same boat as Andre Brown, where everyone expected Isaiah Pede yep. to be the handcuff for Steven Jackson. But when Steven Jackson went down with an injury, uh, he tweaked his groin on Sunday, yeah. according to his coach, where everyone assumed that it was, it was benching. Uh, benching. Yeah. Um, it was actually Richardson who took most of the carries and looked pretty good doing it. And if you want him, you can put a claim in for him pretty much. He's owned in less than 1% of leagues. He might be an interesting guy if you don't necessarily need a fill-in this week. But like to just hold on to because you know Steven Jackson's going to miss time at some point, and maybe there's a little more upside there than someone like a Jonathan Dwyer who's got to fight people for time. And then you mentioned tight ends. Scott Chandler is owned in 17.5% of leagues, and he's been a pretty decent part of the Bills' offense so yeah. far. He might be a good fill-in guy. I wouldn't want to trust him week after week. No, his production's... A little bit too much based Tight on touchdowns. touchdowns yeah. yeah, but he's a guy to consider. Sure. And then if you need a wide receiver this week, I just want to throw three names out. Yeah, I've got three here too. We'll see if they're the same. Um, one is uh, LaFell yep. for Carolina. That's my first. We mentioned him in the offseason on this show yep. as someone who might be, hey, Steve Smith is old. Steve Smith walked out of the game up. on Sunday, yep. banged up. He did come back, but missed some time, and LaFell played really, really, really well. Another one is Donnie Avery yep. with the Colts, who seems to be developing a little bit of a, rep- a repertoire with um, with luck. Avery's an interesting guy, too, that's always kind of been like on people's sleeper lists, but he can never stay healthy. So he's finally showing, I mean, it's only been two games, but that he's getting targets, he's getting looks, and he's making the most of them. Yeah, and, and luck is going to need to find a guy that he can build that chemistry with. And it, it, so far, it looks like he's the guy. And then the third one is Danny Amendola, who's yep. probably the number one receiver on everyone's list. Those are all three of mine. Yeah. Uh, Amendola is owned in 17% of leagues, so he might be a little tougher, but he might be available in your league. He's currently the number one receiver in PPR leagues. Yeah, he's been he's been really, really I mean, good. I also like guys when I'm picking up guys, if you're trying to spot trends, to see guys that uh, – like Reggie Bush had a monster game this week. So maybe that's not indicative of a trend as much as it is he had one great game. Amendola – the reason I particular or personally like Brandon LaFell a little bit better is I think he's got a better quarterback, at least at this point in his career. He's got a, his quarterback's better than what uh why am I forgetting his name? Sam Bradford is. And he really doesn't have any competition for that spot. But he's had about he's had two real similar games. I think he had a touch like I don't I don't have a ton numbers. of catches. Yeah, he's had a bunch of catches and maybe a score. Danny Amendola is the number one receiver in PPR, but his second game was a monster, monster game. Like he had like 30 points Sunday compared to like 10 the week before. Maybe he'll be great and he'll keep that up, but I, I prefer a little consistency in pickups, especially if you're trying to spot early trends. Understandable. Okay. Also, real quick, just to add to the, the pickups, I think we're talking about Chris Johnson. I don't think Chris Johnson's quite droppable, but you just no. kind of have to wait and see. I think Randy Moss is droppable. If you picked him up like I did in a couple of leagues, took a flyer on him, they're they're not that offense, A. I mean, this isn't an offense that's going to throw it all over the place. I think they're one of the top two or three in rushing, so they're just going to run the ball. And Randy Moss right now looks like a decoy and nothing more. He caught one touchdown where nobody covered him, and other than that, he had one catch, I think, in game two. So he's totally droppable. Yeah, and if he's on your roster, I stayed away from him. Yeah, I took him. I took him like in the last round. Okay, let's do some starts and sits. And before we move ahead, let's look back. Yep. Our sits last week: 
Quarterback was Ben Roethlisberger. He ended up with 19 points. He was the 10th rated quarterback. So you might have had a guy better than that. Sure. Uh, Trent Richardson was definitely a miss as far as sits go. I was, I guess, afraid his injury was probably worse than it actually was, which is why I said that he'd be a sit. He had 25 points, which was the third most <laughs> for running backs. A bad sit. A good call, though, was Torrey Smith, who only had 11 points and wasn't even on the first page of players. Receivers, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, he was in the 30s or 40s in terms of his production. So we did well there. As far as our starts, uh, Philip Rivers, QB, he ended up with 21 points. He was the seventh best QB. So maybe if you started him and sat Roethlisberger, we, we set you right there. Um, Alfred Morris um, had eight points, uh, which was 30th among running backs. He was still the featured back. I just think that that game got away from them doing what I think they really want to do. Yeah, I don't have his yardage numbers in front of me. I don't think they were bad. It's just he didn't score and he didn't catch many balls. So right, not much in the scoreboard. And there. then Wes Welker. Again, what's going on with Wes Welker in New England? I have no idea. He ended up with an okay game. He ended up with like 90 yards, but it was on five catches, and I guess he didn't get his first catch until like, he might have only had one catch in the first half, something like that. He got he got a lot more work. Yeah, so in standard scoring, which obviously is in PPR, he only ended up with nine points for the 90 yards. And Yeah, I don't know if they were – I don't know if they're pissed at him for holding out or not wanting to something weird sign the franchise there. tag, but he got a lot more work after Aaron Hernandez got hurt. So I would expect going forward Wes Welker will be fine. But we'll wait and see, I suppose. All right, what do you got? All right, I'm go doing the sits this week. My quarterback sit is Michael Vick. Uh, the Cardinals managed to shut down Tom Brady, so I imagine they're going to do the same to Vick. Patrick Peterson, what is this, his second year? He's a superstar. He takes away half the field. That guy's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a playmaker in the return game. So, like I said, if they were able to shut down Brady – I expect them to do the same at home against Michael Vick. All right. I'm just going to throw this out there. The Saints offense or defense has been horrific. And I here, let's put it this way. I honestly believe Saints are going to beat the shit out of the Chiefs this week. But I still think that their defense is horrific. And whether it be in garbage time like last week or just over the course of the game, I think Matt Castle is going to have a chance to put up some really good numbers this week. Uh, he has 30 point, 34 points on the season so far. He had uh, 16 points against Atlanta, which is a tough matchup. He had 18 points against the Bills in a game that his team was not in at any point. Yeah, he so, had probably 90% of those points in, in the final shot. quarter. Right. Yep. Uh, and that might be the way it plays out again, but sure. fantasy football owners don't care how... Yep. A quarterback scores 18 points. And if you need to start a guy like Matt Castle for some reason and he gets 18 points, you're going to do a backflip. So I'm going to go with Matt Castle as my start at quarterback this week. My running back sit this week is Darren McFadden. And this, a lot of times I'll preface this by reminding people that just because I say to sit, sometimes it might just mean temper your expectations. He might legitimately be a sit this week. Uh, they play the Steelers, who are always tough against the run. And McFadden just... If he didn't have the whatever he had, 13 catches week one, his fantasy season so far would be a disaster. And I don't expect it to get better against the Steelers. The reason I – I mean, maybe this is a little bit obvious one to say, but 
I just wanted to say I don't even know what I would do with him. Like, I, would you buy low on McFadden right now, or would you just? Stay, I'd probably just wait and see. Stay away from yeah, him. Yeah, I'd right. probably stay away. Yeah, I mean, and I actually wrote in my notes that I like Spiller more, which is one of the guys you asked me about. So yeah, Darren McFadden. If I had him on my team, there'd be a lot of guys uh, probably starting over him. I'm going to go off the board for running back here, and I'm going to stick with the same game and say that Mark Ingram would be a good start this week in New Orleans. C.J. Spiller just wrecked the Kansas City rushing defense. And I know that one of the things the Saints coaches have said that they've regretted about both games is not really establishing the run. They tried the second week, but I think Carolina was up to the task. I don't think that they're... Kansas City's going to be up to the task. And the Saints have already proven that Ingram is a short yardage goal line back. Right. So I think Ingram could be a good start this week. And the reason I'm saying him too is because part of what we try to do with this is not be obvious. I mean, I think Arian Foster is a great start this week, but <laughs> it's stupid to bring that up. So I wanted to go a little bit off the board, and I think he's a little bit off the board and could be a good start this week. Who is... Touchdowns aside, who has more rushing yards this week, Pierre Thomas or Mark Ingram? Well, I really think they're going to try to make it to make it Ingram, but Thomas has played better, right? So Thomas might end up with more yards. Do you think this is a make or break season a little bit for Ingram? I mean, it's only his second year, but he hasn't been overly impressive. You know what? I think everyone on the Saints is going to get a pass this year if it's a shitty season because of the Peyton thing. Okay. So I, I think I think even if his season isn't good for him, he's going to be able to take that mulligan like everyone else. And really, it's been about opportunity for him. Yeah. He hasn't had an opportunity yet. So I, I don't know if he's good or bad. Right. All right, my sit at wide receiver this week I hope is wrong because I own him in leagues. We were super high on him in the offseason, but that's Percy Harvin against the 49ers. Uh, the 49ers have great linebackers, great – I mean, they're just a really, really solid, tough-to-play-against defense – I, I considered putting Peterson as my running back sit, but the one time everyone sat him a few years ago against Chicago or somebody, he, he blew a record. Yeah. So, uh, Peterson, San Diego. one of Peterson's worst games ever was like three yards against the 49ers. But <clears throat> I think Harvin might struggle a little bit here in PPR. I, I don't think you can sit him just because through two games, he already has 18 catches. So even if he catches nine balls and, Get zero yards in this game. That's an okay day for you in a PPR league. So I don't think you can sit him, but he's a guy I would really temper expectations against. The only plus side, I guess, is they're probably going to be behind all game, so they're probably going to have to throw. All right, my start at wide receiver is Vincent Jackson, who struggled the first week in his debut for Tampa Bay, scoring only four points against Carolina, but was really good in the shootout game against the Giants. He had five catches, 128 yards, and a touchdown. So I guess the question fantasy owners have to know is, is Vincent Jackson more like the guy who played in the Giants game, or is he more like the guy that played in the Carolina game? I'm not sure, but I know he plays Dallas this weekend, and I know that Dallas, even though they went out to improve their secondary, it hasn't quite worked out just yet. I think that in the opening week, uh, the Giants were able to get some traction, getting some guys like... I can't remember exactly, but um, well, Nick's only had four catches for 38 yards, so I, I don't. I, I just remember a little bit of success. Maybe it was Bennett mostly in that case, um, but I think that you can get some. You can get some if the Seahawks can do it. 
Uh, I think Vincent Jackson can do it. So I like Vincent Jackson this week against uh, against the, the Cowboys. What do you think about Mike Williams? I think he's got a lot more value than we thought he had before the season. He's got two touchdowns already, but it's o- the only second f- touchdown is a brilliant. Catch. It was really nice, yeah. really nice. I did see that. It's only been five catches though. His first game, he had two catches for twelve yards and a TD. He's a big guy. He's a red zone target. Yeah, he's a nice. He can catch the ball, but he's not exactly a, a PPR monster. The only other thing I will say, since you mentioned the Giants, uh, start all your receivers against the Giants every week. They are yes. terrible in the secondary, and they they kind of always have been. But Tony Romo ate him up, and Miles Austin had a real nice game. So that means Steve Smith and Brandon LaFell should be on the field for you. This Absolutely, week. Yeah. It, unless Steve Smith's hurt. And if, which and that's case, Thursday. I love Brandon LaFell. Yeah, and that's Thursday game. So be careful of that. Yep. All right, that's it for Five on Fantasy this week, right? Sure is. All right, let's take a break, and uh, we'll be right back with Ben Ryder. <laughs> Our next guest is from South Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. Today, he is a staff writer for Sports Illustrated, where he covers baseball, football, and spent the summer of 2010 covering the World Cup soccer tournament. He often writes the Inside Baseball column at the beginning of the magazine, and you can find his writing on Essay.com, where he most recently wrote about Brandon McCarthy and the danger of the comebacker. He is making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Ben Ryder. That kind of came out like essays.com, not really si.com, didn't it? Hey, you look at essays.com, you probably find something else. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, don't go to essays.com. I, I can't vouch for the content there. Go to si.com if you want to read Ben's work about Brandon McCarthy and comebackers and uh, ignore my poor reading skills <laughs> what's up ben um not much you know um i'm uh actually find myself down in uh, washington dc i'm about to have a look at the uh, washington nationals who uh, as we speak are uh, one game ahead of the reds for surprisingly the best record in the national league well i think that the most obvious question that comes to mind after you say those words is just what did you think about the Nats' decision to shut down Steven Strasburg? I'm torn. You know, I'm torn like everybody else. I know where GM Mike Rizzo is coming from on it. Um, He believes that he has a team built for the long haul, which he does if you look at these contracts. You know, virtually every one of their key contributors is locked up for years and years to come. Whether you're talking about Ryan Zimmerman, or Gio Gonzalez, or uh, Jordan Zimmerman. Um, and Strasburg, he wants to be a big part of that. You know, so there's that. He says that we only know 10% of what went into his decision-making. Um, and, you know, he's proven himself to be a savvy guy, savvy uh, evaluator of talent. Obviously, he knows how talent works. So I think we have to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, at the same time, you know, hey, you don't know that the team is going to contend every year like they are. What if this is their one chance and they go into October uh, without their ace at the top of the rotation? Obviously, it's a tough decision, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to yield to Mike Rizzo on this one because um, I think he knows what he's doing. You know, I think we're to the point now in the season where we're starting to feel the impact of the second wild card. And 
I've heard some arguments from people that they like the way the second wild card is impacting the end of this season, and then I've heard some strong opinions the other way. Uh, people saying that it's breeding uh, mediocre teams, keeping mediocre teams alive in, in the in the race for a much more significant amount of time of the season. What's your opinion as we're kind of settling into this and kind of really feeling the effects of what the second wild card is going to have on the pennant races in the end of the season? You know, Steve, I'm in the latter camp, um, and I think that this is the camp that's kind of uh, you know becoming more and more vocal as the season uh, comes to a close, and we really start to see how this second wild card is going to work in the flesh, as it were. That latter camp being, this is really kind of silly uh, when we look at the teams who are, who are still in this thing, especially in the National League. You know, you've got teams, the Sillies are four games out. The pit, they're 73 and 74 at this point. You know, Pittsburgh is just around 500. They're, they still have a shot. Milwaukee has a shot. Um, so this means that, you know, there's a good chance that a team that's just simply not very good is going to make the playoffs, um, at least in some limited capacity. But I think what it also does is it really harms the good teams um, who under, you know, the old structure would be rewarded, you know, like the Atlanta Braves at 84 and 63. They're obviously a playoff caliber team. But they're going to get in there, uh, you know, they're going to play one game, you know, three hours against, you know, some vastly inferior team. And as we know, anything can happen in that, those three hours, you know, depending on who's pitching and, uh, you know, just the random bounces of the ball. Uh, so, yeah, I think that it's really silly. I think that it's diluting things. And I think that, uh, you know, ultimately people won't like it. And I also think it's crazy going into the playoffs, but the number one seed in each league is not going to know where they're going to play on Sunday until Friday night. This year, of course, the first round of the playoffs is going to be a 2-3 format, meaning the first two games on Sunday will be played at the winner of that one-game wildcard playoff. Right. So say, you know, say the, uh, the Nationals, if they win the number one seed, they'll be sitting there, um, you know, they won't be able to prepare to know... Uh, whether they're going to travel to, you know, Atlanta or St. Louis right now until possibly very late Friday night. Something does not seem right about it, especially given the nature of the sport, and I think that there are going to be a lot of complaints about it, honestly. Just to clarify, in the past there was a rule that the wild card team couldn't face off in the first round against a division opponent. That rule doesn't exist anymore after this one-game playoff, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, the number one seed will be playing the winner of this one wild card game, no matter what, and they'll be playing that wild card winner uh, to start the series at the wild card winner's home park. You know, there's a lot that's going into this, and I think that uh, this is a structure that was decided upon a bit hastily, and I think people are going to have a lot of problems with it, to be honest. Well, if we can talk about a couple of the positives of it, I think one is that we have a really interesting thing going on in the American League East with the Yankees and the Orioles, who are one game apart. Uh, the Yankees are 83-63, and 63 and the Orioles are 82-64. and 64. And obviously, both teams want to do anything they can to avoid being in that one game. How do you handicap the race between the Yankees and the O's going forward here? All right. You know, I, I think that I like the Yankees having a slight edge um, going forward. You know, they have kind of the similar slates up ahead. 
both play four of their five final series against teams with losing records. Um, in the Orioles' case, it's Seattle, Boston twice, and Toronto before finishing with the Rays. The Yankees, who are getting Andy Pettit back here, have a similarly weak slate. Um, more than that, you have to think that at some point, statistically, the way the Orioles have been winning will catch up with them at least to some degree. You know, they're now just an absurd. They're thirteen and two in extra inning games right, uh, as of this podcast. They're twenty-seven and eight in one-run games, and they've been outscored on the season six hundred and thirty-six to six hundred and fifty-six. And here they are, eighteen games over five hundred. You know, at some point, the law of averages will 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 come into play. Um, they're already guaranteed a winning season, but I think that you know it wouldn't be surprising if over these last you know fifteen games or so. Um, you know, they fall off a little bit. Having said that, I still think that the Orioles will make that one-off wild card game, um, even if the Yankees win the NL East. The AL Central is in just a regular old standard win the division and go to the playoffs, lose the division and don't, it seems like at this point, based on their records. I mean, there's still a chance they could climb in and maybe challenge for that second wild card, but at this point it really looks like it's going to be one of the two White Sox and Detroit in, and we've been waiting, it seems like, all season for Detroit to just take control of this division. We've been talking about it since April or June or last time you were on in July. We probably mm-hmm. said the same thing. Detroit's just eventually going to take this thing over, and somehow the White Sox have managed to keep them in arm's length away for most of the season. Are you still in the camp that thinks eventually Detroit's going to have a little bit more and win this division, or are you starting to believe in the White Sox? I believe the White Sox are a good team, and, and you're right, Steve. When I was on the podcast earlier this year, uh, we thought that the one team in any division that was a lock to win the thing would be the Tigers, right? Yeah. Like in the in the West, we were talking, oh, Rangers or, or Angels. In the East, we were talking, you know, then, you know, Yankees or Rays or, or Red Sox, how little we knew. At that point, um, yeah, and every division seems to have these kind of two powers, two plus powers, except for the Central. Of course, it hasn't played out that way. Here, Detroit is, uh, you know, four and a half games out of the second wild card, which is, uh, you know, not impossible, but that'd be quite a few to make up. Um, they're only two games back in the Central, so yeah, it's really an old, old-fashioned race here. Um, you know, depending on what happens on Monday afternoon, which they're about to have first pitch. Um, or I guess they just have, when the White Sox play a makeup game in Detroit, that, that's kind of almost a must-win game for the Tigers. And most listeners will be listening to this after this has happened. So the Tigers will probably likely be behind by one or three games um, heading into the last stretch here. But, yeah, I mean, I still believe that the Tigers are the better team. I think that eventually some of these role players that just have done absolutely nothing will start to do something for them. Um, and if we look at their remaining schedule, um, you know, it looks pretty good, to be honest. Okay, so they play Oakland for three um, in Detroit, and they play kind of, they finish out with the dregs of the AL Central here. Minnesota Royals, Minnesota Royals. Okay, so that's anything, that's a favorable schedule for them. Um, a bit tougher here for the White Sox, who still have to travel to the Angels, and they also play four games against the Rays. So those are obviously much more uh, intimidating opponents. Um, if I had to place uh, a bet on this, I'd probably say that the Tigers uh, eke it out 
um, and claim what has seemed to be rightfully theirs from the beginning. But, yeah, I mean, you know, kudos to the White Sox for sure. They've hung on a lot longer than anyone thought they would. You know, I was watching a little bit of Moneyball the other day, and it always cracks me up that in the entire movie they didn't take one second to mention Mulder, Zito, or Hudson. Uh, but the A's are having a similar dream season to the one that they had in the season that's featured in the movie. How have the A's been able to... Like, where did this come from? I'm sure that even last time I, I looked, you were, last year on July 10th, the A's probably still weren't even on our radar. Yet here they are, 84 and 62. They seem to be moving closer and closer to having a firm grip on at least a wild card spot. They're only three games behind Texas, who was running away with this division last time we talked. And the interesting thing is, is they always, it's like, okay, well, they're going to go to LA for three, and that's going to kind of be their downfall. And they just always seem to win two out of three. And I don't know, what is it about this team? Yeah, I mean, their the run has been stunning. You know, this is a team that as of June 10th was nine games under under 500. And here they are, um, you know, more than 20 games. They're 84 and 62, so that's quite a turnaround. Um, you know, it's, it's really been uh, two things for them. It's been pitching and it's been power. Uh, you know, they got some surprising power years out of guys like Josh Reddick, who has 29 home runs out of nowhere. You know, Yohannes Cespedes was better than anyone could have thought. You know, they're even getting power from unexpected people like Brandon Moss, you know, career-long utility guy with 18 bombs all of a sudden and 230 plate appearances. Or, you know, Johnny Gomes has come back for 16. Or Chris Carter has come back for 14. Um, whereas he was, you know, on the border of being a failed prospect not long ago. So, you know, all these home runs, even, you know, hitting them um, as difficult as it is in the Oakland Coliseum, has helped, and the other thing that's helped has just been, you know, an outstanding array of starting pitching, also kind of out of nowhere. You know, if we're looking at a guy like A.J. Griffin, who was, you know, considered a reasonably um, good prospect, but nothing great, here he is in his Major League debut, he's 6-0 with a 1-9-4 ERA. You know, Brett Anderson, come back from Tommy John surgery, without the usual kind of hangover from that, he's 4-1 with a 1-9-3 ERA. So incredibly deep starting staff and a lot of power bats. And, you know, to be honest, this might be a greater um, a greater job by Billy Bean than even those Moneyball teams. As you mentioned, those teams had those legitimate stars um, that, you know, were as glossed over as they were in Michael Lewis's book and then in the movie. And this team came in with uh, nothing, and they've uh, certainly become something. And it's just a, an incredible story. And, you know, again, it's a shame that they're probably not going to win the AL West. And here they are. The story could end with one silly wild card matchup. You know, say the Angels make it in. And say the, say the A's have to play, have to face Jared Weaver in that one round, uh, <laughs> that, that one game wild card round. You know, this thing, could, this thing could end in three hours. And, you know, and that'll be that. So, I mean, that's, that's another reason um, to not be too enthusiastic about the new structure. The sportscasters are here with Ben Ryder from SI and SI.com, not SA.com. You can follow Ben on Twitter at SI underscore Ben, R-E-I-T-E-R. Um, just a couple minutes left, so let's just fly through the National League a little bit. Uh, where do you, how do you handicap that second wild card spot if we're assuming kind of that Atlanta isn't going to collapse like last season? No, Atlanta looks 
uh, strong, especially behind you know the, the revelation that has been Chris Medlin. Um, they look really good. I have to give it to the Cardinals. You know, I've been a proponent of the Dodgers all season long. I um, you know recently wrote a long story that you can find on si.com, not sa.com, <laughs> on Ned Coletti, the GM. I'm kind of telling his life story, which is a pretty incredible story. Um, tied it, tying it into all the moves that he made um, after the deadline, shocking the baseball world. I kept thinking the Dodgers are going to turn it on once they got healthy, but it's just an unlucky season, man. This thing is more unlucky for them than last year. You know, now it looks like Clayton Kershaw might well be out for the season with a hip injury. Chad Billingsley is out. Ted Lilly had to, you know, abort his bid to come back. Um, from injury, yeah, Matt Kemp is banged up. He has six hits in September. You know, this is Matt Kemp, six hits in September. You know, Adrian Gonzalez since that trade has one home run, is batting two thirty three. This is uh, in twenty one games. They tried, and I think they made a great effort. I think this is something that will, um, you know, pay benefits in the years to come. This is not just an effort to make the playoffs this year, but I don't think they're going to do it. Um, I don't think that the Brewers or Pirates can do it, or Phillies. I think we're looking at the Braves and the Cardinals um, to play that one-game playoff in Atlanta. I want to get a little bit more into this, but we're pretty much out of time, so I'm just going to throw one at you and see what you think. There was a time when it was basically a lock that Josh Hamilton was going to run away with the American League MVP, and he... I think I saw a really uh, great headline somewhere. It said Hamilton's MVP season or uh, Hamilton's dream season turning into a nightmare. Uh, how do you handicap the uh, MVP races in the American League and the National League? And then we'll let you go. Um, you know, American League, it's easy. I think it's been easy since the All Star game. It's Mike Trout, um, without a doubt, really. Rookie of the year and MVP one season. Rookie of the year, yeah. MVP. You know, give him some Cy Young Award votes. You know, manager of the year, whatever you want. Uh, what he's been able to do, he's just turned the game upside down. In, uh, you know, war, wins above replacement. He's got a 10.2. Second place is Robinson, you know, 6.6. A good thing's not, not close. You know, Hamilton has turned around, has turned that once dream, then nightmare, then dream again season kind of back around. And he's now 42 bombs and 123 RBIs. But all around, it's without a doubt Mike Trout. I think it would be kind of a travesty if he wasn't, you know, the first uh, MVP slash ROY since Ichiro. Um, in the NL, it's a bit of a closer race. Ryan Braun's really turned it on. But I think you have to look at Buster Posey um, for the, the Giants. You know, obviously they fell apart with him last year after what happened to him in that home plate collision um, in May. Uh, the fact that they're now running away with the NL West, seven and a half up, has everything to do with his kind of brave comeback from that injury. Um, you know, running that pitching staff and also just, you know, just hitting and hitting and hitting. He's up to 22 homers, not 22 homers, 93 RBIs. His war is 6.2, which puts him a little bit behind uh, Andrew McCutcheon and Ryan Braun, who are, uh, you know, probably the two guys who are closest to him in the race. But I think Buster Posey, given his offensive output and his team and the position that he plays, you know, and also a little bit what he has come back from so well, uh, will join Mike Trout. 
um, as the most valuable player this year. Okay, it's uh, Ben Ryder, SI.com, SI the magazine, at SI underscore Ben Ryder on Twitter. Uh, she's in Washington, D.C., checking out the Nats, and he's got to get going. You said, what, dinner with Obama at 4? <laughs> That's right, something yeah. like that. Yeah, so, all right, thanks for giving us some time today. We really, really appreciate it, bud. Always a pleasure, Steve. Thank you. All right, we got to thank Ben Ryder for being on the show today. Always fun to talk baseball with Ben. Uh, big book club update today. A couple of things to talk about and a really, really exciting thing to announce. Uh, first things first, we have three books picked out for the month of September, and uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy all three of them. Uh, the first book is by a guy named Ray Glear, and it's called How the SEC Became Goliath. Um, and the book is about the SEC football conference, obviously, and about the SEC's dominance the last, oh, almost seven or eight years at least, um, with them winning championship games and playing in championship games against other SEC teams. And I did want to mention that that book is actually on sale, uh, on Amazon right now for 10.99. So... Might be a good time to jump on that because the hard—I mean, a hardcover book is what probably twenty-five bucks these days or something like that, right? Yeah, that sounds right. So, I mean, if you get a good deal and you're interested in reading uh, that book with us, give that a look. And Ray will be on us on with us at some point in October. The second book is One Last Strike: Fifty Years in Baseball, Ten and a Half Games Back, and One Final Championship Season by Tony Larusa former manager of the Chicago White Sox, Oakland Athletics, and the most recently the St. Louis Cardinals, obviously the manager of the defending World Series champion. Uh, Tony retired after that championship, and I started reading the book, and I'm really enjoying it, and already have a whole list of questions to ask Tony when he joins us uh, sometime soon. Uh, the final book this month comes with a side note that Don and I, I can't speak for Don, but I know I'm really excited about. <laughs> uh, the book is called The Good Son. It's by Mark Kriegel. It's a book that was recommended to us by Jeff Perlman. Uh, the book is The Life of Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Uh, Kriegel was the author of Namath, which was a pretty big book about a year or two ago. Yeah. Uh, about, obviously, Joe Namath. We have a really cool opportunity that we're looking forward to, and I might have mentioned on the podcast last week, I don't remember, but Mark Kriegel is on a book tour for this book, and that tour is stopping in Buffalo, New York, where we're based next Wednesday, October 20, or excuse me, September 26th, and the event is at 7 o'clock. If you're interested in meeting Mark or Boom Boom or us for some reason, uh, the event is at the Barnes and Noble in Amherst on Niagara Falls Boulevard near the Boulevard Mall. Uh, if you get off the 290 and you head south on the Boulevard, it's pretty much, you know, you'd want to head north on the bu- Boulevard at that point. If you head south, you'd get right to the mall. So at that point, you, you want to head north on the Boulevard to get to this location, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Figure it out. But it's on Niagara Falls Boulevard. 
uh, in Amherst, Barnes and Noble, really big. Can't miss it. Right by Cheeburger, Cheeburger, and Best Buy, and all that right, stuff. Right. And with it being by Best Buy, that confirms that you'd want to go south, um, because Best Buy is yes. right after the yes, yeah. So you would want to go south, and um, we're gonna have the chance to interview these guys on location at six o'clock. And that interview will air on the podcast the following week. So, so we're interviewing him before the signing. Yeah, before the signing, 6 o'clock, we are scheduled to meet with both guys, Mark and Boom Boom. Okay. Both of them will be there. So if you have any questions for Mark or Boom Boom that you'd like us to ask, don't be afraid to email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. And we will definitely make sure we take some pictures and put them on our website because we've been meaning to do a little bit of work on the website. And I think if we had some really cool pictures from a really cool event, that might motivate us to uh, sit down and, and do something like that. Plus, it would be a good reason to tell Mrs. Beaver she can come. She loves to take a good picture. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, that's it for the book club today. We'll be right back with Roy McGregor to unfortunately talk about the NHL's fourth lockout in 17 years. Our next guest is from Huntsville, Ontario, and is a graduate of Laurentian University. He is one of the most established and acclaimed writers to ever appear on the podcast. He has authored over 40 books, a mix of fiction, nonfiction, sports, and politics. His latest, Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey, is a greatest hits type collaboration of his very best hockey writing. He has been one of Canada's most talented journalists for years in his work for the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, the Toronto Star, and Maclean's Magazine. Today, he writes for the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper. He has won numerous awards for journalism, including two national newspaper awards, several national magazine awards, and twice the ACTRA award as the best television drama writer in the country. In 2005, he was named an officer in the Order of Canada and was described in the citation as one of Canada's most gifted storytellers. He was recently named for induction into the Hockey Hall of Fame. He is making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the talented distinguished and incredible Roy McGregor. How are you today, Mr. McGregor? Pretty nice introduction. Thank you so much. Oh, very welcome. Uh, we're very honored to have you on the podcast again. You know, sometimes yeah, nice sometimes, sometimes we're lucky enough to uh, fool someone once. Uh, <laughs> looks like we got you twice. So um, It's not the best time, though. It's not the best of terms to, uh, to have reached out because for the third time in 17 years, the league that we both love so much is uh, in labor unrest, as we could put it. A lockout again. And I think the best way to answer this question is to tell you this. I have season tickets to the Buffalo Sabres with my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And I can't explain to her why we're not going to games this year. It's just not in my ability, I guess, to explain why this is happening Again, because she is smart enough to remember that we just missed the whole season, seemingly yesterday, for all these things. So maybe you're being a Hockey Hall of Famer and much better at explaining things than I am. Maybe you can take a shot 
and explain to her and all of our listeners why we're here again. Well, I wouldn't have a prayer. I wouldn't know where to begin. It's uh, it's really interesting that none of their arguments have gone over with anyone. And if you go back eight years to the earlier lockout, particularly in Canada, the owner's argument for cost certainty worked miracles with the public. Uh, Canada, Canadians were petrified that they were going to lose five at least of their six franchises. Then they had six. And the Canadian dollar at the very day of the lockout back in 19, or in 2004, was 77 cents, I think. So now it's worth a dollar two American. Believe it or not, if you were getting paid in Canadian dollars as a hockey player, you'd be even happier. So all the Canadian teams are doing well. There's seven teams now rather than six. And the owner's uh, argument uh, doesn't look like cost certainty anymore. It looks like greed certainty. The players just seem like a bunch of naive uh, fools trying to hang on to something they lucked into and who can blame them for that. Um, Can't see any middle ground. Can't see any solution. And I see both sides as existing in bubbles that do not allow them to see the world at large in the slightest. They are both so wrapped up in their so-called entitlements that they fail to see the North American economy is in a bad state. They fail to comprehend that the the demographic of the hockey fan, particularly in television, is aging to a point where advertisers aren't going to want them all that much in, in a few more years. And they've got to, uh, you, you can't be putting people off, you've got to be attracting new people. That's why, where they've made a fundamental error in judgment, both sides. Has the NHL made a mistake in looking to the NBA and seeing the success that they had with their lockout last season and thinking that they can take those same risks and ignoring the fact that they're not the NBA? Well, that's certainly where the inspiration comes from, and that's where Gary Bettman himself came from. The fact of the matter is the NBA went back, uh, what, they have 66 games or something like that? Yeah, they came back and, at Christmas. Yeah, and pulled out uh, a season, really, in a championship, and uh, it seems, from what I've read, the players ended up getting the money that they, that they were owed and uh, had a full season of pay. So certainly that's where the inspiration is coming from. Then again, as as your girlfriend points out, you can remember vividly the last time there was a walkout in hockey. And so there's no warm and cuddly feeling coming from anywhere, from anyone who likes the hockey game when they watch what's going on. People yeah. are furious at these, both sides. Yeah, you know, it's re- I was going to say, it's really hard for me to even know, as you say, who I would back in the fight if for some reason I was forced to pick a side. And I'm not sure about the players just yet, but I'm sure that I saw an owner in Minnesota sign the two biggest free agents out there to huge matching contracts, and then on the other side of his mouth say, see, look at how broken the system is. I was able to do this today. We need to fix the system. That's and, right. He signed them for 13 years, and now he's one of the ones saying that maximum length should be five years. The hypocrisy is is astonishing. What happened this past weekend is beyond the goal, where they, they, they basically committed some $200 million to salaries in the last couple of days, almost exclusively signing uh, people to contract extensions, which means they already had contracts. So what was the point? Well, I, I mean, I assume the point was to try to 
extend them beyond what they hope is going to be a new rule, right? Be grandfathered in, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, no one, no one can understand that because if if new rules do do come in that affect today's contracts, uh, what what becomes of those contracts that were signed in the final minutes? <laughs> you know, if they in fact roll back, I mean, they did that before. They rolled back twenty four percent eight years ago, so it definitely affected contracts already standing. Uh, who knows what's going to happen here? You can't blame the players for for lunging at the money, but you certainly can blame the owners for uh, putting out two very distinctly different messages: one that they have to smarten up, and two that they're insane. <laughs> you know, it's funny because for a long time, as we've seen this coming because anyone who follows hockey seen this coming for a while now, I was kind of assuming, you know what, I think the owners are going to take a shot here at saving a little bit of money, trying to see what they can get back from the players. But around Thanksgiving, they're going to get the game going again. They're not going to walk away from the Winter Classic in Detroit, and they're not going to let the chance of having the HBO show, which has been very successful the last two seasons, and attracting fans in the United States go away, and they're not going to let a whole season on the NBC Sports Network, where they're also building a little bit of momentum, disappear. But as this has moved on, I'm more and more leaning towards the possibility of us actually losing another season. Do you have any sense, just in your opinion, of how this might play out in terms of length? I think that uh, all fans know that they will cling to any hope that they see and so all the things that you've just detailed is exactly what everyone is talking about it makes no sense for them to have a, to lose a whole season when all those things are in play but we have forgotten that we said the same things last lockout even though there wasn't a winter classic back then i can even recall a headline in the sun chain in which they said the strike is definitely over as of december 8th or something like that it's going to be over before Christmas, and they categorically uh, said that it would, would would be, and had sources apparently saying that that was the case. And for a couple of days, everyone was sure that it would be over. Of course, it never was over. So you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know what happens when they get locked in lockdown mode, both sides. And we don't know anything about Donald Fear as a hockey negotiator. We certainly do know about Gary Bettman on the other side. So who could say? Who can say? I I happen to feel as you did feel, you say you're changing, but I happen to feel they will not pass on the Winter Classic, that it's the first thing, you know, people in Buffalo are are far more cognizant of the National Hockey League and hockey than most Americans, but the the Winter Classic is the first thing since, let's say, Wayne Gretzky's personality that has transcended the game and touched Americans who wouldn't normally pay the slightest bit of attention. The NHL knows what a goldmine this is for sponsorship. I mean, the All-Star Game was never able to do this. The Stanley Cup itself, in my opinion, is really a disaster. Played far too late in the season when all the good uh, playoffs are over. On into June between two cities that get somewhat wound up about it for for Canadians not having teams in the finals. It tends to be anticlimactic now. We, we, We lose interest as the Stanley Cup playoffs go on. So you have this one thing the Winter Classic that is absolutely a gem. The HBO uh, bit is tied directly to it, of course, and I can't for the life of me see them being so stupid as to, to let that go. However, that having said that, they are stupid, and we know that. <laughs> you know, and I think back to the glorious day that I spent 
on New Year's Day when the first Winter Classic was held in Buffalo, and I remember getting all bundled up and walking down there and being in the stadium and feeling like I was in a snow globe. And as great as that event was that day, it's even better now. And when I look yeah. at the list of events in Detroit and the two different venues, Michigan Stadium and uh, Comerica Ballpark and downtown and the college hockey mixed with the pro hockey, and I just think, oh, do not, do not blow this, you know? No, I, this just, is the best of them all. And it just, it's just so sad to think that that, that could happen. Surely they're not that foolish, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you're in the same. It seems like as as fans and people who follow this, we're we're in the same paradox of. Well, I don't know whether it's an age thing or what, but I was among the many last time eight years ago who tried to keep up with uh, all the numbers and all the analysis and all the suggestions. And personally, and I find this among my my friends for sure, people don't care at all anymore. They're not going to pay the slightest bit of attention to what you and I are talking about, and especially when it gets into the details. People are just shrugging, turning their back. They're they're peeved at the game. They're absolutely furious at both owners and players. And basically, the message that fans are sending out is, "Call me when you're ready to drop the puck." Yeah, you know, and it's it's unbelievable too because the Sabers actually had a season ticket payment scheduled for September 15th. And when we got that, when when I realized that that was the case, I just thought there's no way that they're going to have the guts to take that money out of our bank account if that CBA expires. And sure enough, they didn't. Instead, right. instead we got an email saying, oh, payments have been suspended and we'll get back to you on that. And if you're paid in full, we'll give you the interest this time instead of us earning all the interest that we kept on your playoff money from last year. So it seems like they're almost they're already trying to do a little bit of, of damage control with the fans. Uh, the sportscasters are here with Roy, Roy McGregor, one of the great hockey writers of all time, writes for the Globe and Mail in Canada. Uh, if you're not sure what that is, it's essentially the USA Today equivalent in Canada. You can follow Roy on Twitter. He is at RoyMACG. Uh, one last thing, well, two last, two quick things before we let you go. One is I usually like to get a prediction, you know, like it's usually a real fun thing like, hey, who's going to win the cup or um, do you have a favorite for MVP? But I, I can't let you go without knowing – because it's going to give me peace of mind, believe it or not, just based on how much I respect you. Uh, and I think you kind of alluded to it, but what's your kind of prediction for the finality in all of this? Uh, my own feeling is somewhat earlier than people are anticipating, that they will get something done end of October, mid-November, and uh, get right to it. They're not going to, surely to God, they're not going to miss out on the Winter Classic and the HBO and surely to God, they're not going to risk uh, turning fans off forever. They think that fans will come flooding back as they did last time. But don't forget, they reinvented the hockey game last time. People came right. back to speed and skill and a whole new idea of the game. You can't reinvent the game every eight years just because you've locked out your players and you want to suddenly bring back the fans. It won't work this time. So I think they're playing with fire. And when fire gets together with ice, what happens, right? It melts. <laughs> Very good point. Well, uh, last thing. Uh, we exchanged some emails uh, a couple months ago, um, but we never really did anything on air. But I wanted to mention, in, in case some of the listeners don't know, that you 
Well, let's let's go like this. So my all-time favorite hockey player, Pavel Bure, finally inducted to the Hall of Fame. So he's going to be in the class. Uh, my brother and I, who basically bonded over our love for Bure, um, <laughs> had a toast uh, when when it was announced. Uh, Rick Jenneret, who is a hero to many people in Buffalo for his great calls of pretty much every hockey memory we have, uh, kind of the second great voice of the Sabres after the great late Ted Darling. And Roy McGregor, all going to be entered into the Hall of Fame class, and I wanted to congratulate you. And, and just curious, you're a man who has had many honors, as I mentioned in your, in your uh, bio in the beginning. Where does uh, being inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame rank in those honors? And what does it mean to you to, uh, to be a part of this? Well, it means a great deal. Uh, like any any Canadian kid, I'd rather have gone in as a player, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a great honor. And uh, my uh, what I look forward most to is strikes people some people as quite odd, but uh, it, it's nonetheless true. To me, the best part of it is the first day I show up to play with my old timers hockey team and the ribbing that I'm going to get in the dressing room because <laughs> it just is going to be absolutely insufferable, but it is going to be so funny that I can hardly wait for it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of, oh, here comes the Hall of Famer into the locker yeah. room, that kind of thing. A guy who's never back-checked in, in his life gets into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know, like I said at the top, I wish it was uh, a more festive, more fun. I wish we could have been talking about training camp or the preseason yeah. or any of those great things, but we had to get some of this lock up, lockout stuff out of the way, and hopefully when they clear it up and we get ready to get back to playing some puck, you'd be willing to come back on again. But thank you very much for your time oh, today. Thank you. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. I think we'll talk soon. Yep, bye. All right, want to thank future Hall of Famer Roy McGregor for joining us and talking about really as sour of a subject as you can talk about. Yeah, no kidding. It's funny, when I called and asked him if he'd do it, he said, you really want to bore your listeners like that? <laughs> and I said, well, you know what? I think a lot of people don't quite understand it and just want to kind of get in, figure it out. You know what I mean? So it's something we had to do, and we did it, and now we can put it behind us. Yep. And that's the last, honestly, it's the last we're going to talk about it. Yeah, I, I hope this doesn't turn into... They're uh, off the radar as far as I'm concerned. The football lockout we end up talking about every week. I nah, mean, but screw that. Yeah. NHL, you, you let me know when you're ready. I, I, I'm a big enough fan. I'll come back. Sure. But you let me know when. I'm, I'm not going to... Yeah, football's kind of earned that respect where people will talk about a stupid lockout for so long because it's the biggest sport in, in the country. And we mentioned if you're a high school senior somewhere, you're 17 years old, this yeah. is the third lockout of your lifetime that's, that's, that's bad it's terrible so you know what let me know when you're ready uh last thing before pick four as always just want to remind you that you can find us on facebook www.facebook.com slash the sportscasters or you can find us on twitter at sports underscore casters you can email us the sportscasters at gmail.com our blogs are the sportscasters.blogspot.com and the sportscasters.tumblr.com and our website is www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget, 
about our other podcast over at Football Nation, www.footballnation.com. A really great show this week, an interview with Jason Locke and Fora from CBS Sports. Oh, yeah. He's at CBS Sports. Okay. Pick four. Last week, I went two and two. I had the Packers minus seven over the Bears. I had the Falcons minus three over the Broncos. Those are my two wins. Uh, I lost the Ravens minus three over the Eagles. That one seemed to be in the bag like all day. Yeah. I don't know what happened to the Ravens. And then I had the Saints minus three over the Panthers. Obviously, that was a da- disaster. Now, Don, you technically went one and three, but I'm going to give you a potential out here. Okay. So be honest. We pick. We accidentally stated that the Falcons were playing in Denver. Was the fact that the game was in Denver the reason that you picked the Broncos? Because if you did, I'll just call it no action. It might have been, but I, I should know better. I'll, I'll take the hit there. Okay, in that case, you went 1-3 and three with your win being the Packers over the Bears. Yeah. Your loss being you had the Broncos over the Falcons. Uh, Seahawks beat the Cowboys. You had the Cowboys there. And uh, Saints minus 9 over the Panthers. Didn't work out. No. All right, this week's game of the week again or involves Atlanta, the 2-0 Atlanta Falcons at San Diego, who are also 2-0. San Diego is actually a favorite here being at home, so basically they're saying they're a three-point favorite, so the same pick them. I'm going to take Atlanta plus three. They've been more impressive to me. They beat an impressive team in Denver last night, and uh, I just think they're the better team. San Diego's got to beat somebody before I, before I jump on that bandwagon. That was basically my – Train of thought as well. I mean, I'd love to see the Chargers win this game because I'm getting a little bit worried the Falcons are just going to run away and hide with the NFC South, and I don't want that to happen being a Saints fan. But I don't think that this is a hard, as hard of a game for the Falcons as it might be. might look on paper with both teams being yeah, 2-0. I, yeah, I don't think so I think either. the Falcons are a much better team, so I'm going to lay the three points and take the Falcons as well. The only thing I'll add quickly to that is Atlanta did beat a good team in Denver last night, but Denver was probably the better team for 45 minutes of that game. Yeah, they got uh, the four turnovers in the first half really helped Atlanta win that. Atlanta game. wasn't great, and uh, I think if they play that game for an extra quarter, I think Denver wins it by 10 or so. I mean, just unless Atlanta was just sitting back on their lead, but I'd be a little bit worried the way they finished that game. I know what you mean. My host choice this week: Jets at Dolphins, big rivalry game, uh, AFC East battle between two teams uh, that are both one and one it's one o'clock on CBS and the Dolphins are getting three points at home so I'm going to take that and I think they went outright but the three points are a bonus who do you hate more the Jets at this point the Jets yeah I mean there's there's no rivalry between the Bills and Dolphins anymore and the Bills still lose to them as bad as the Dolphins are but it's not the same as Kelly Marino right all right my host choice is I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to take the five points and take the Raiders over the Steelers on Sunday at 425 on CBS. I don't know why, but this just feels like an ugly trap game for the Steelers. you got to go out there, play in the West Coast against a team like the Raiders, who you might take a little lightly. You just had a big home win against the Jets. Something just feels icky about this game, and maybe the Steelers pull it off. But I like that five points, so I'm going to take the Raiders and the five points and just say that it feels a little bit icky for the Steelers this week. My worldwide leader pick this week is Packers at Seahawks. That's Monday night at 8.30. Uh, the Packers didn't look great in their first game, losing 
obviously, and then they came back and they looked much improved on defense and the offense looked better, but still not where it was. Uh, that game was on Thursday. They've now, they're, and they're going to have an extra day playing on Monday. I think they right all their wrongs and get back to the team that many people picked to go to the Super Bowl. And I think they beat up on C- the Seahawks. I know it's in Seattle. I know it's a loud place to play. I just don't think Seattle has the talent to stay with them. So I'm going to take the Packers laying four points on the road. All right. My worldwide leader this pick this week, I'm going to go with a college game that I hope I can win and win, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm gonna. I've seen three lines: plus thirteen, plus fourteen, and plus seventeen. So I'll take the middle one. I'm gonna take Kansas State plus fourteen over Oklahoma. Game Saturday, the twenty second at seven fifty on Fox to the whole country. Aaron Andrews has the pregame. Gus Johnson on the call. Nice. I'd love to see Oklahoma win the game, and I still think they can. But I just don't see why they're such a big favorite against three and and0 Kansas State team. Kansas State has been real impressive. Oklahoma's been a little shaky so far this year. So I'm going to gladly take the the 14 points and hope that Oklahoma wins this one like 31 to 24. All right, my bold prediction this week, I'm not going to get cute with doubling or tripling lines. I'm just going to take a game straight up. Uh, the Rams at the Bears on Sunday at 1 o'clock on Fox. The Bears right now are a nine-point favorite. I'm going to take the Rams straight up without the points. I don't really expect to win this bet, but the Rams have kept every game close. You they, like the value. Here. They won their second game. They were really a, just a two-minute drive or a two-minute drive stop away from being two and zero at this point. Maybe we're not. Yeah, they almost had the Lions done. Yep. So they've played tougher comp, topic, t- tougher competition close than the Bears, and the Bears are just kind of embarrassed. I know they had a couple extra days to prepare, but maybe they were exposed a little bit. And uh, and I wonder how they're going to react to Cutler's act on Thursday with yeah, his pouting and bumping linemen yep. and just ter- terrible body language. And So I'm going to take the Rams straight up. I think it's that NFC West is uh, far from the joke it has been in the past. Well, if Don wants to get crazy, I'm going to get crazy too, and this is as crazy as you can get. The Vikings are an eight-point underdog at home against the mighty 49ers yeah game sunday september 24th at one o'clock on fox and i'm gonna take my boy adrian peterson and the vikings straight up no points just the money line over the 49ers on sunday because sometimes you just gotta get crazy yeah man, one you know? of, like you said we're looking for trap games it feels like week. a trap game i mean the 49ers are riding high there was so much on that game at home on Sunday Night Football against Stafford and the handshake stuff and all that. And now they got to go across the country and play basically at 10 o'clock in the morning for them. And, you know, the Vikings, no one expects anything out of them. Nope. Uh, No one expects them to win that game. So let's get crazy and I'll say the Vikings over the 49ers even. All right. All right, that does it for this show. Thank you to Lee Jenkins, Ben Ryder, and Roy McGregor. Don't forget to check us out on Football Nation, www.footballnation.com, and Jason Lack and Fora. Follow us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, www.sports-casters.com. Cue the hip. All right. 